He's an all-night disc jockey. What does this request really mean? Play Misty for me. For Clint Eastwood, an invitation to terror. Ah! Nobody asked you to wait for it. You're not jumping me, Buster Blue Eyes. Get off my back, Evelyn. Have to get you all nice for David. I hope he likes what he sees when he walks in here. Because that's what he's taking to hell with him. Just hope we're lucky enough to grab her the next time she tries it. Tries what? To kill you. The next scream you hear will be your own. Clint Eastwood, play Misty for me. This was a uh, surprise. This was a surprise. Yeah. Surprise party. Yeah, we, we two weeks ago. Well, we, no, last it was like week, two weeks ago. Like two, it was like two weeks ago. <laughs> last week we were we were talking. We were pumping up our next cat podcast. Yeah, yeah. And we even had people like, we can't wait to see. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> As I hit my elbow on the on, my, on the, the TV table, <laughs> the funny bone. Yeah. Ah. Uh, we had people excited about like you know what are you guys so excited about and, which we are very excited about next week's podcast. Yeah, but, yeah. But we decided to slide one in. Yeah, yeah. It was actually your idea, you know, and, and you know, and it was uh, you know we called an audible. And we said, and this happened last year. Remember, we recorded last summer. We recorded one podcast, and then for like a month we. We, we kept put, sliding ones in in place. Remember, maybe it was like Commando. Pushing it back. Yeah, and we're like, we're going to get to the one we had said, but this was a little special one because this... Well, this one's we're not really pushing it back. We're just sliding an extra one in. Yeah, Bonus. exactly. Bonus yeah. episode. Yeah, we're not putting anything because this correlates with uh, the premiere of the remake of the for the film. Yes. Um, for those who haven't seen the title on the thing that you're listening to right now. Yeah, if you today, don't look at Venturing into Dion territory, yeah, yeah, with a 1971 classic or 1970. It's, it's, I get sometimes years. Yeah, because it's 70 years get screwy. It's billed on online as 71, but then when you look at it, uh, the Roman numerals on the title at the beginning, it's 70. Hmm. So it's right it on the been, cusp. It might have been copywritten in 70, and, and then, then came out in 70. Got a release. The release date is March 31st, 71. So yeah, you're right. So uh, yeah, we're doing uh, the the beguiled, the beguiled, the begotched. The, you like the to begotched. Call it. Uh, I welcome <laughs> to Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. That's Jay Blake. Hello. And this is Dion Baya. Hello. Hello. And we're talking uh, the begotched, the beguiled, we're talking the begotched. Now this was brought up. We did mention this in a podcast. Yeah, you how, mentioned how the begotched came about. It might have been the Dirty Harry podcast. I don't remember. But this is also a kind of an interesting companion piece to the Dirty Harry podcast because it's. Right next to when Dirty Harry came out, it's got a lot of the same. It's got four of the same principles in, re, involved in got this. Jim Belushi, Jim Belushi, <laughs> Dan Aykroyd. Got uh, principles. Who else played principles? Mar- Morgan Freeman played a principal. Tree Williams in the principal. Uh, He's the substitute. Oh, you're all. Oh, it was you're right. Jim you're right. Belushi I'm sorry. Was the, was you're the right. Principal. The principal. Yeah, with Lou Gossett Jr. Yeah, yeah. With the like driving motorcycle. I wouldn't want to have my kid go to that school. Um. But yeah, so this week we're doing the Beguiled because the uh, I wouldn't call it a remake. I guess the re- the reboot or retelling, imagining, yeah, of it. But it's far, probably that's the, it. Gets confusing because you think of it because it's an existing movie that it's a remake. But sometimes 
It's just the retelling of the original source material. Yeah. It's, uh, full disclosure, Deanna and I have not seen the Sofia Coppola no. version. I've done of some reading story. Of it, about it, and, and I've, I've, it's generated some controversy already. So I read up on that a little bit, and uh, I was very excited about it. And, but then now reading about it, I don't know if I'm as excited because I have such a uh, affinity for the for the original yeah. 70, 71 movie. I'd be very you know? curious to see it, and we can get into this more as we dive into the movie, only be, strictly because watching this again, because I haven't seen this movie in... 42 not, years. 18 years? Is it really since Maybe the time since you and I Whatever you it? and I watched, whatever you showed it to me. I don't, do you remember when that was? Because I don't. It was, you were living in the old with Mike Bram. Oh. It was in that room. Jazz drummer Mike Bram, who was the drummer for... Jason Mraz. Jason Mraz. He, we, I, I roomed with him. Uh, you were living in that room, so that was... In the... 99? In the, in the double? Or when yeah, I had yeah. singles. No, no. In the, in oh, the, so that was, that was second semester sophomore year. So that was, yeah, 90, 99. Yeah, okay. 99, 2000, something wow. like that. The heyday. So uh, that, was, that was the last time I saw this movie. But watching it this time, I'd be very curious to, to watch the Sofia Coppola movie because um, this is primarily a story about women mostly told through the perspective of Eastwood's character for the most part. Yeah. And, and told by not, and I'm not discriminating against them, but given like 1970, probably told by two guys that are somewhat misogynistic. Yeah. I mean, this movie, <laughs> you know, it's a... certainly, this movie certainly doesn't sh- show women in the best light. Yeah. So I'd be very curious to watch, a version of this story directed by a woman because it, I mean, it will have like drastically different sensibilities. Well, that's one of the f- things she said was that the first movie, this movie we're talking about tonight, was done by men and told from the men's point of view where her reimagining of it is taking the women's point of view. Yeah. And I, for me personally, I don't know how exciting that would be because I, I kind of like how this is kind of done in a way. I mean, people will call this movie at some detractors or critics call it misogynistic and then I, others I've read against that will say well it's just also an exercise in male destructiveness and the result of mm-hmm. destruction but it's also just a really like fucked up almost like not a cautionary tale but like a like a twilight zone episode like yeah. a really like I mean this they call this was billed as like a suspense uh, um a suspense the, war drama. The, the original trailer. Oh, it's ridiculous. But we it's can get into, crazy. We can get into all that too, but this is, you know, people say, is this a horror movie? Is this a gothic yeah, horror yeah. movie? You know, it kind of totes the line there and to the point where, you know, when Eastwood got into doing this with Universal, that's what he wanted. He, he was like this, you know, we got to play up this being a gothic horror film, a psychological horror. And then afterward it coming out, you know, some people say he was miscast, and he's the first one also, Eastwood, to admit he was miscast. Not that he couldn't do the role, but because the movie might have done a lot better had he not been in it. Yeah. Because of how Universal Expe- didn't know what to do. Yeah, and you expectations. Know? And they completely dropped the ball in that. I actually think he's perfectly cast in it, but I understand that one, I think Universal, like you're saying, didn't really know how to what was the best way to sell this movie as an Eastwood movie. And two, I think Eastwood's fan base 
they went to it thinking it was probably a, had different expectations it for it than what it was. Yeah, and that's what his his biggest thing is that uh, the people who would have saw it, who weren't Eastwood fans, weren't attracted to it because it looked like an, a typical Eastwood picture. And the people who were fans of his who went to see it thought, I mean, on, in the movie poster, he's holding a revolver, and there's never a revolver in the movie. I think he has a musket. Yeah, you know, yeah. he's, he's using, and then he, he's using a rifle in the flashbacks, but when he's walking around the house, the, the gun he grabs, it's like a, it's like a, 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 a pistol, like a musket. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and that, this ended up leading to one of the reasons why Eastwood wanted to, to direct, and also him forming a partnership with Warner Brothers on Dirty Harry, which is the same year that he's kept up until today, he still does Warner, and then he didn't end up working with Universal again until... 2008 or 9 with the, the Changeling, which is the uh, what's-her-face movie? Uh, Angelina uh, Jolie? Yeah, Angelina Jolie. That movie. Not the George G. Scott <laughs> Changeling. That would have been awesome having a, a version of that movie. But, um, so, yeah. And Eastwood also says he was, he, this, he was drawn to this because of how uh, a weird angle it kind of took uh, uh, of the Civil War in a story like that. And also... You know, he was mad at the time to frame his career. He had just come off doing Kelly's Heroes in, 19, I think, 1970. And that movie's a classic. Personally, for me, it's like one of my top ten. Uh, his fans love it, but he wasn't really happy with it. He thought it was too much of a comedy. And he wanted it to have, be a little more serious so that it could kind of play to the anti-war sentiment. Yeah. Much like this movie. And that's what he tried to do again with this movie. He wanted to show you know it's an anti-war film and the horrors and the atrocities of war and what war does the people on the peripheral i think this is a movie that i normally am the one that's against summarizing the movie too much but i think this movie needs like give us like the three sentence (laughs) give us a short just of what this movie is for people because i I would imagine that this is a movie that would that there's a chance that not a lot of people have seen this one because one it's just, you know, it's not that popular of a movie in comparison to, like, the rest of his catalog. And two, we usually, we tend not to cover a lot of movies like this one. Yeah. Uh, I guess it is a foregone conclusion that we will spoil this. So. <laughs> and there's some spoiling to be had in this movie, too. Yeah, so yeah. that's why if you haven't seen it, uh, I would suggest turning this off and watching it first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, so hopefully you did that in your back. But I guess, last chance. Yeah, you better do it because we're going to spoil it, and we don't want you to be sorry. We don't. We're not going to be sorry. But uh, I guess basically, like in a nutshell, it's about a, uh, a soldier who's wounded stumbles across a, a seminary. It's a, it's the Civil War. It's this yeah Civil War, and wrapping up at the end of the Civil War, you have a uh, he's a, a Union soldier. He's a Union soldier. When, and for people who don't know history, that was the North. And right on the border, you know, with the South, the Confederates, uh, there is a um, a female um, seminary, the Farnsworth Seminary, seminary for Young Ladies. Yeah, it's like a finishing school. Kind yeah, of. and they're kind of uh, very secluded in the middle of the backdrop of this war, and he stumbles across them one day, and uh, he's almost near death because he's been in a battle, and they kind of... Uh, take him in first they don't want to and there's you know should we because he's a union soldier we're southerners and then they it's an all-girl school there's not one man present they take him in they nurse him back to health and then some stuff goes down and (laughs) you know yeah it's uh i mean that's the first that's like the 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 first conflict is we're going to take this enemy soldier in and what are we going to do with them well well like the humane thing would 
happy to like take care of them, yeah. nurse them back to health, but they're very uh, hesitant. Very, uh, they're conflicted. I they're guess. conflicted, but they're also cautious. Yeah, and then because also if they if they keep him and don't give him over to the Confederates, they could be tried as traitors or you know yeah. harboring a fugitive or whatever you call it, a enemy combatant. They could be all you know. They could be hung maybe potentially. So uh, there's that big issue there as well as they don't know if it's a it's the right thing harboring this guy and you know hiding him away. You know. So they very early on have this big confliction, all these girls there, and then it becomes some crazy other kind of a <laughs> shit goes down. It actually was a lot less crazy than I remembered it being. Yeah. Uh, it, which was, it's interesting when that happens, when you see it, when you watch a movie again that you saw years ago, and it's not necessarily one that you grew up with so it's not like you know it like the back of your hand or you watch it like one time and you remember liking it and you remember things about it that you like but then when you watch it almost 20 years later you're like yeah this is actually not what i thought it was yeah which is not a bad thing or like a good thing you know it's just it's different than my memory yeah was of it um i thought it was i find it i find it to be a really interesting film it's a kind of movie that doesn't get made anymore, which is why I think another reason why I'd be curious to watch yeah, the, the this Sophia newer Pope, version Pope of it. Because it's it's just, it's, I mean, it could be a play easily. Yeah. Uh, and it's based on a book, right? Yeah, a book from uh, 1976 called A Painted Devil. Well, it can't be 76. I'm sorry, 66. <laughs> 1966 by Thomas Cullinan. And it's, uh, he wrote a book called The Painted Devil. And then after the success of this movie in 70, The Beguiled, he went on to do uh, The Besieged also in 70. The He likes the be, bee. The, be de- the Bedeviled. Yeah, he likes the bee. <laughs> he liked the, like the bee. He didn't think motif. that up originally. And he was like, crap, I should have named this The Beguiled. Oh, yes. So, uh, should have named it The Begotched. So, yeah. So let's get to this. So first off, um, for me, growing up with Eastwood, to tie this into sleepovers, I discovered Eastwood around like eighth grade, and then I became it came a, a semi ritualistic kind of a thing where I would either sleep over my friend Martin's house, who I bring up a lot in the cast, or my cousin Ben, and we would watch like Eastwood movies that I would bring over. And my friend, my cousin Ben, got into Eastwood the same time I did, so we discovered his movies together, mostly westerns. Right around the same time, like uh, Unforgiven premiered on HBO. Uh-huh. We watched Two Mules for Sister Sarah. <clears throat> uh, we watched uh, the spaghetti westerns. We watched High Plains Drifter, uh, The Dirty Harrys, and it was new and exciting at the time, and it was so fun to, it's almost like you're discovering a genre, you know, and very early on, we were, you know, we were kind of uh, cognizant of the music uh, aspects of it, and, uh, you know, the, the fanfare and, and uh, the, you know, the people involved in it, so uh, you'd have TBS, which we talk about in the Dirty Harry podcast, would play like 12 or 13 hours of Eastwood. <clears throat> yeah. But they would only play his westerns or his cop movies, just the thriller, the typical Eastwood stuff. Yeah. This wouldn't really get a lot of play. So back when A&E used to be arts and entertainment and play like and stuff play, like Columbo. And, and play, but also play movies without commercials. Yeah, you know, they would, and then uh, they were kind of appealing, like they were kind of like an alternate version of PBS. Uh, this movie came on one day and I was able to tape it off of PBS I'm sorry, Amy, and that was the version we had when we watched, you know, and which I completely forgotten. But I guess at the end of the tape during the credits, you have 
you know, when, when the credits start rolling, you have the voiceover to order this product. Uh, you know, call blah, 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 blah. You've been watching The Beguiled. But I guess I hit stopped on the tape, or maybe the tape had a roll in it. Yeah. So it be- from The Beguiled became the begotch. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it was like there was an edit to like whatever the next thing was on the tape, or I don't, I don't remember you know, or what maybe it was. Now sometimes you'd have lines in the tape, like <laughs> yeah, the tape yeah. is, you know, so it could have been like the begotch. So <laughs> that <laughs> stuck with you. <laughs> but it was so if you're watching it at the end, it's like you've been watching the begotch. Yeah. On a and uh, and I hadn't thought of that for and 20 so, years until... And so, ev- so forever, uh, this kid that we watched it with, Chris Funderburg, who uh, has a site called Pink Smoke... I'm going to say he's dead. He's dead now. Um, he's dead to me now. Yeah. But uh, at the time, that's how we referred to this movie. The because This movie was always just called The Begot. And I had completely <laughs> forgotten I had this on tape. I taped it off at A&E. It was just a, a door I closed in my mind until we did whatever podcast, maybe the Dirty Harry one. Yeah. And you had brought it up. And I was like, Jesus, how do you know that? You're like, because we watched it. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> the, to this day, it's still in my mind. It's called The Begotched. Yeah. And uh, this movie came out in 1970. It's the third collaboration between uh, Clint Eastwood and director Don Siegel. And it is actually, I think, the... Maybe the fourth collaboration at that point with Lalo Schifrin, because Lalo Schifrin had done, he might have did Coogan's Bluff, which is Don Siegel and Clint Eastwood's first team-up. And then the second team-up of Don Siegel and Clint Eastwood was uh, Two Mules for Sister Sarah, which is 1970, right before this. And then Lalo Schifrin had did the soundtrack to Kelly's Heroes, did the soundtrack to to, to uh, Two Mules for Sister Sarah, and does the soundtrack to this movie. And then with the same year... Uh, they do Dirty Harry, and he does the soundtrack with Don Siegel as well directing, and Eastwood starring in Dirty Harry. So, it, and then uh, it ends up being they, they. I think Lalo does. Does he do the? I don't think he does the soundtrack to the Deadpool, but he does the soundtrack to maybe the four Dirty Harry movies, various and other stuff. So there's there's a tight team working here, which is very interesting here. Uh, when Eastwood was in his Universal Pictures years, you know, I have a sweet box set. Um, that I bought th- that has Coogan's Bluff, this, um, the Iker Sanction, another good one, and then Play Misty for Me, those four on mm-hmm. there. And those are all out of the, the Universal movies at the time. Uh, and then we talked about, at the time, Jennings Lang, who was the head of Universal, read an early version of the script where you know the end is kind of not the traditional end you'd have on a picture like this. Yeah. So an early version of the script was that he lives happily ever after Eastwood's character and they go walk off in the sunset and Eastwood and Don Siegel both were like, no, we need to, you know, have this be a little more faithful, maybe to the original book, but also we wanted to have this dark ending to prove a yeah, point. Yeah. And Jennings Lang, the head of Universal at the time, was flabbergasted. Like, we can't have Eastwood dying up the end of the picture. Spoil. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> we warned you. So uh, that was the reason why they didn't know how the heck to build this movie when it came out. You know, that's why it's like, you know, the uh, the poster of the movie is like, you know, Clint Eastwood, they want his love or his life. And it, the, 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 I find the, 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 the trailer and the marketing for this movie to be more misogynistic than the actual movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I found now reading stuff about Sofia Coppola's movie that people aren't necessarily knocking this movie, but they're kind of like, you know, you know, and it's like, I kind of find, it's almost like the criticism of the original Dirty Harry with the columnist Pauline Kael, who like, you know, was very partisan about it. And I like, you know, you can, I think stories like this need to be told. 
you know, yeah. and it's and it's interesting. It's an interesting way to tell it, and you know, it doesn't. I don't think it presents anybody in a positive light. This movie. No, no, you know I, I wouldn't. Mean? I wouldn't necessarily. When I said that, when I brought up the word misogynistic, I, I wasn't. But it's valid because that I people felt, that I felt like the movie is misogynistic, but I feel like it's told by men. And men of their generation tend to have yeah. a little bit of misogyny to them. I mean, we're still talking about like women's liberation. You yeah. know, this was we're talking about we're talking about a time and we're yeah. talking about a time when women, you know, really they still don't necessarily get a fair shake when it comes to being compared to men. But we're talking about a time when that really wasn't the case. And <clears throat> I think it's pretty safe to say that, not that. I'm not, you know, I don't know Clint Eastwood. I don't know what his feelings are in terms of misogyny or, or what his feelings are to women. But I would, I, I think it's a pretty safe bet to say that he's a pretty old-fashioned kind of guy. Um, just if you read the kinds of things he says about like young, like <laughs> younger generations and stuff, he's, he certainly he comes from a different time. Um, and I don't think, and I, and women are certainly not. Uh, shown in a very good light in this movie but you're right he isn't either you know i think you're right about that they're not really kind of having you pick a side so much as you're trying to just it's something that's just unfolding here and i think for him at the time it's kind of a ballsy you know you would ask me in the dirty harry podcast about you know how much of the decision making was being done by him at the time and this was a part in his career where he was starting to be able to pick the projects he likes and he's able to assemble people together, which he was able to do for the Dirty Harry thing as an executive producer in here. And for that point in his career where he's still, he's coming off, you know, Westerns and he only made at that time, maybe Coogan's Bluff is a modern day picture and uh, Eagle's Dare is a World War II picture, uh, Hang Him High. So he has a lot of Westerns under his belt yeah. and very few like, you know, modern day set in contemporary pieces. So for him that he's an action star, for him to then take a piece like this and then his next film he does, which is Play Misty for me, uh, you know, he, he, he's almost playing with the role that the, his, his uh, persona is the masculine person and he's injecting a, a, a huge dose of, like, uh, femininity in it, yeah. you know. And that's really interesting because he's playing on that, the, masculine, the masculineness of it. And then what happens when that clashes with, you know, feminism or, yeah. you know, especially in that, and Play Misty a, for Me. And he's a victim. Yeah. I mean. In both of these movies. Uh, more so in Play Misty for Me. In Play Misty for Me, he says it's based off a real experience kind of in his younger years where he had, he had a one night stand with a girl and she, you know, was just all over him. And, you know, and it's so it's actually it's interesting to see, like, you know, it, it also speaks to the time, which I think a lot of this movie does is like, you know, when you people would wouldn't think twice of having a night with somebody and that's it. Yeah. Where it's sometimes, you know, you have to think of the consequences of that, you know, aside from just maybe getting a woman pregnant or a uh, uh, STD, you, you yeah. may have the, you know, well, you know, you're stringing someone along or this person may not be able to emotionally deal with that as we see in play Misty for me. Yeah, which yeah. Is, I mean, I think that a lot of stuff in a way it's like, uh, I think it's it's a theme or a, a kind of a story that's even probably more relevant now because of the age of the internet and social media and the whole catfishing yeah. thing. And um, I mean, it's certainly. I think it's um, yeah. I think it's. I think that kind of story of some decisions that lead to uh, some unfortunate consequences yeah. because about uh, you know invert and. In, 
having to do with sexuality or intimacy uh, between two people, I think that's, like I said, just by, very... by sheer way. It's like we're all connected in a much different way now, yeah. in a much bigger way. You don't just go to a bar and meet any, somebody anymore. It's like everybody's meeting everybody online all the time. It's and it's Yeah, and, and it also shows the darker side of that. And I think it's exemplified in Play Misty for me where he's a very good-looking, uh, confident bravado, you know, but then he doesn't even think twice about sleeping with somebody, but then the ramifications of it is like, you know, yeah. it's the darker side of it. You're right, he becomes the victim, which is, you know, that's really another interesting thing for in 1970s land to have the number one box office star of the action world suddenly being a victim. And how, do ha- how does he become a victim in a situation? Well, you put him in this with either, a, a, you know, a, a mansion full of, women who have been suppressed or repressed or in the other movie a woman who immediately becomes a stalker and i don't know if i'm sure like this movie a lot of people haven't probably seen play misty for me yeah and that's it's another great movie friend you know that's one we've talked about doing and i'm sure we'll get to at some point and that i think lands a little more on the gauge of going towards kind of horror in a certain sense because yeah it's certainly like a more of a suspense like a psychological you know uh and it's i guess you can Really, nowadays, I mean, this might even be dated. Compare it to Fatal Attraction. Oh yeah, I mean, it's you know that kind. But people may not even know Fatal Attraction now. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know the younger, True. you know. So it, that's why I say it's dated. But it's that's the kind of story where it's and that was his his debut as a director. He brought on then you know Bruce Surtees, uh, who is a uh, DP. This is the first movie that DP ever shoots as the Beguiled. Then from there, he ends up working with Eastwood and Don Siegel a lot. And he ends up doing like maybe 12 movies with Eastwood until maybe Pale Rider in 85. And then he goes and does some other things. But he's yeah. he's got a lot of big movies under his belt as well. That guy, the, the director of photography here. And, you know, we said Lalo is involved here. And, you know, this is like Don Siegel's 26th film Yeah. Uh, up until then. And, you know, I love Don Siegel. We've talked about him. He's um, a guy who directed... Uh, Dirty Harry, but he was also directed the first invade, the original invasion of the Body Snatchers. Uh, he's one of these guys I don't think it's his due because in the seventies you think about when the they broke the code, the uh, the movie code. You know, you have people. The first people you think of like Sam Fuller or Sam Peckinpah, you know, coming out and doing crazy things. But Siegel was there too, doing like these yeah. kind of genre pictures. You know, yeah, he's definitely one. I mean, I think he's one that like some real. Like real diehard, like cinephiles kind of recognize and appreciate, but he's certainly like of a lesser known tier. Yeah. Like the more casual cinephile might know the pictures, but they might not know him. Yeah. Uh, by name. Yeah, and it's certainly a team up. The two of them were, you know, Eastwood had some formative time with Sergio Leone, and then when he had the tutelage under uh, Don Siegel, that kind of developed his idea of wanting to. To direct, and certainly his experiences Eastwood's on Kelly's Heroes, and this movie, and this movie completely flopping because of the marketing. He just got so fed up. He's like, you know, maybe it is time for me to try to have creative control on how a movie's marketed, and try to maybe put my the director's hat on. Yeah. Um. So this movie, how do we? How do you want to go about? I mean, we we set it up kind of what it's about, and uh, you have you have this seminary for women, this Farnsworth seminary for young ladies. Yeah. And. <clears throat> To me, this movie kind of lays within the you know the the Southern Gothic kind of like um, you know like uh, the haunting you know like the 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 the, the, the uh, Robert Wise kind of movie. Yeah, I kind of 
see similarities here with, say, the voiceover. I see for me, yeah, that's true. You know, you see like in gothic yeah. horror pictures, you kind of have that voiceover of people's They're, inner monologues. Yeah. And, you know, and at first glance, when I watched this, it was almost like, oh, this is dated how they're doing it, the flashback and the voiceover. But then I got past that for me, and it was kind of working to a certain level <coughs> here. <coughs> Sorry. Yeah, it is a device that you don't see anymore. Um, and it's funny because it didn't even occur to me. But, yeah, that happens in The Haunting, the original Haunting movie, where, you're right, it's inner monologue. So, I mean, it's, it's voiceover, but it's not like a narration. Yeah, it's not like... Uh, What's his face from Blade Runner, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's like you see a pick a shot of them and you're hearing what they're thinking at yeah. that moment, which is just something we don't see anymore. So it is a little jarring at first just because it's so and out it of the ordinary could, from what we're used to. And it could come off as like hokey almost too, like, oh, this is dated. But then it, it reveals a lot of psychological aspects about the character, which I find really um, daring, you know, like the parts with Eastwood where you want to like Eastwood because it's Eastwood, but then... He starts telling this story, and then you see what I guess maybe what he's thinking, which is the flashback, and it's complete lies he's spinning to these women. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, of you know of the horrors of war. Yeah, it's well, there's there's a lot of it's it's a it's a weird movie to tackle uh, for us because it's just it's not just you know it's just it's it's unlike. I think almost anything we've done so far on the show. It almost gets us into like theory, film theory, as opposed to like us reminiscing about, remember when we first saw this and how freaky, <laughs> you know, like our usual fare is yeah, like yeah. nostalgia. It's a very intimate picture. Like I said, it could almost be a, not almost, I mean, it could, you could do a stage. It's almost like this. a misery. You know, Cause or... you could, it's very much in one location, a very small uh, kind of ensemble cast. We have, like the the headmistress of the of the school, played by uh, Geraldine Page, who's a big Broadway actress at the time. Um, we have a uh, uh, an African American woman playing a slave because yeah. you know this is during the Civil War, which is something that the that's the little controversy they have right now because uh, uh, an active choice Sofia Coppola made and actually disclosed in the press release is that she actively decided not to, to have that character in because. It, since it was too political, she then it opened other doors to things she didn't necessarily want to talk about yeah. or go over. She and that's getting some backlash. And I actually, you know, that's another thing I heard. I forgot where I read that someone's knocking this version, the seventy version, saying, "Well, they didn't really do a good example of covering it there." And I was like, "No, I think well, one that, that aspect of it is really well yeah, handled. One, she's the only." May Mercer, who was a blues singer at the time, yeah, who plays uh, the, the the African American slave, who is the kind of the maid or the yeah, cook yeah. in the house. She's like the only character that's yeah, you, like redeeming. <laughs> yeah, you actually have a kind of uh, you know you have a like she's the only one that's like not kind of horrible in some way. Yeah, I mean you have the little girl, but, but even then, she, but is, then the little girl by the end of the movie is corrupted. Yeah, she's the one who you know the movie starts with her and ends with her. She finds Eastwood nearly dead, the little girl, and then at the end of the movie, she's the one who begets Eastwood to begotch. <laughs> she's begotched Eastwood yeah, by she, the end, and that was a crazy thing. And that might have been the first time Eastwood. You know, Eastwood's only died three times in in movies he dies a spoiler a honky tonk man and in Gran Torino and then in this movie and this was when I first saw it certainly I was like holy shit they killed him <laughs> you know yeah it's so you it's have the, you have those two female characters they're kind of the matriarchs 
Yeah, Geraldine Page. Of the house. She's the, the headmistress, and then you have her, her slave, yeah. And then you have, like, next tier down, you have the teacher. Yeah. Um, who's played by uh, Elizabeth Hartman. Yeah, sad, sad story with her, but yeah, her. She plays, like, the teacher, and then the rest are various aged. Students? Or... Yeah, like, young, the young a young woman to a very young girl. Yeah. And there's really only two of those characters of the students that are like at all memorable and actual characters. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the rest of them are just kind of interchangeable. To, yeah, exactly. You know, as being like the group of students. Yeah, and they they <clears throat> here or there interject. But only two of the students really play any significant part in the actual story. Yeah, you got Carol, who is uh, played by Joanne Harris, who uh, is like a sex pot in this movie. Yeah. And then um, you have the little girl, the little girl, yeah, who uh, played by uh, pa- Pamelin, yeah, Ferdin, which uh, plays Amy. So, um, she's... so that's the, that's there. You got like your major cast of characters, and then about five have, or six other. You have other that come through, like Confederate soldiers that come in, and those would be like. You know, they would do walk-ons on the play. <laughs> yeah, come in, and say something, and leave. You know, uh, and then you have these kind of memories of the of the headmistress about her brother, which is another completely taboo subject. Which I wonder if the Sofia Coppola movie even pre- brings up or that subplot. I don't know. We're, we're, this, this podcast is going to be us speculating yeah. about Sofia Coppola. Oh, no, we're not, hey, we're not making any assertions <laughs> on if the movie's good or bad. No, or no. Yeah, I yeah. Just, yeah. It's almost just, like we really should have kind of seen it before we did yeah. this, but uh, this was kind of a spur of the moment thing where it's like, hey, the, the Sofia Coppola one's coming out. You want to do more Eastwood? Let's do it. <laughs> Deanne, you've been wanting to do Eastwood. This is an Eastwood movie I like. Let's yeah. throw one out That's special All right. for the summer. Um so you have a lot of weird things going on in this movie. I mean, first off, you have the reason why Eastwood is found is because the little girl Amy is she's left the confines of the compound to go pick wild mushrooms, and she's yeah. not supposed to. She comes across him near death. He's like, "Help me!" She kind of like helps him as best she could to like an area to hide, and some troops go by. Yeah. And I mean, how old is she? Six? How old do you think she is supposed to be in this? She says she's 12 going on 13. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Because uh, he asks her there. So the troops are coming. And the reason why I'm... Although she seems younger than that. I know. But she said, maybe she's lying to him. But she says, like, I'm 12. I'm going to be 13 soon. That's what he's like, oh, you know, it's old, old enough. <laughs> old you enough know? to kiss. Yeah, so you have... There's a, the reason why I'm explaining this, yeah. So you have these troops go by. And to distract her from, like, getting nervous... Eastwood asks, how old are you? And, you know, and she's like, 12, almost 13. He's like, old enough to kiss. And he lays on a kiss, which yeah. is right off the bat, people were like, holy fuck, what the hell? You know, he's yeah. kissing. It's a pedophilia. Yeah, he smooch, you know? gives her a big smooch yeah. right on the lips. And it's and then it starts this whole cascading effect throughout the movie of this, you know, Eastwood, he is uh, in the movie, you know, he's an invalid and he's being taken care of. So, you know, the, the, the immediate concern of his is he doesn't want to go to one of these uh, Confederate prisons they had, like in Andersonville, or this one is called uh, uh, Fiat Prison. Because, you know, a lot of these, you, you most certainly die in these things. If, if people have seen the John Frankenheimer TNT movie, Andersonville, you see how horrible these, the, the conditions were in these prison camps and stuff. So since he can't really, how is he going to be able to, the best way he can stay out of this by persuading these women around him to, yeah. to, 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 
to uh, do what he wants is to use the only weapon he has left is like his sexuality. Yeah, yeah. So he starts, and I don't think Eastwood's character is necessarily a bad guy. I mean, he's a bad guy in the context of the war and what he was doing, but then that's like the fog of war, you know, who knows what happens to people. You know, it's funny. Because but I don't think, what my point is, I don't think he has like a conscious decision to play all them. No, no. Or, I, does I th- or do I think he actually thinks about the ramifications of what he's doing? I don't think he even crosses his mind about th- them getting jealous of each other. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, he is, he's at, f- you're right. He's using like his masculinity and his sexuality as his only tool. His only weapon, really, to, to for survival in this to circumstance. To get under their good graces, like. Um, so he's very charming. In a way, you do almost feel a little bit like Fistful of Dollars in that he is kind of playing everybody, but it's not like he's playing everybody against each other. He's really just trying to... Survive, to, yeah. Yeah, to like, you know, make the best of his situation. It's interesting because if you look on Wikipedia... Uh, and you read up on this movie, there's this quote that he says about his character. Yeah, and it's so which it's, Which is like, I don't know. One, it has no reference to the actual uh, movie. And two, he sounds like a total fucking asshole. Yeah, <laughs> so I don't know why it's... Cause, and I think it's funny because, I, because when you put it in the context of the movie, if I recall correctly, it's also like poorly written, so it might not even be... Right, but it's like Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino. This is, this is the quote. Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino play losers very well, but my audience like to be. That's why, like, it's not even proper English. So I wonder if, like, how they accurate. don't like to be. <laughs> my audience doesn't like to be there, to be in there vicariously with a winner. That isn't always popular with critics. My characters have sensitivity and vulnerabilities, but they're still winners. I don't pretend to understand losers. When I read a script about a loser, I think of people in life who are losers, and they seem to want it that way. It's a compulsive philosophy with them. Winners tell themselves, I'm as bright as the next person. I can do it. Nothing can stop me. One, I think it. if, if he said this out of context, it makes him seem like a bit of a jerk. Completely. Two, I don't know what this has to do with the movie, because if anything... I wouldn't. I don't know if I would, to call his character in this movie a, a loser would never occur to me, but I would say that this is one of the weaker characters that he's played in that in that it's his own it's his like own weakness of like not being able to keep it in his pants, which is like what ultimately does him. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like not being able to have self control. It's interesting. Which is like a bit of a weakness. Like it's really like he can't, he's thinking with the wrong head by, by the middle of this movie. Well, but, but, but is he though, in the sense of immediately all these women that he, so he's, he's brought into the, to the, he's taken in by these women. And the first thing is like, should we, hand them over to the to the Confederate troops. And then, you know, to hand them over, they'd have to put, like, a blue rag tied on the fence post. And then when the whoever comes by, the patrol, see, oh, they found a Union soldier. And very early on, the, the headmistress, Geraldine Page, sees them bringing some Union soldiers, and they're about ready to kill one of them. And they're like, don't do it in front of her. You know, we'll, we'll yeah, shoot yeah. her later on. So she knows if she hands him over, he's not going to get any treatment for his injuries, and he'll probably most likely die. Yeah, yeah. So she's that's admirable. You know, she's not looking out for herself. But... Yeah, what, it's 
you know, for me, it's questionable at that point. I mean, certainly the excuse she gives and maybe the excuse she believes. Yeah. But as you watch the movie, I wasn't quite sure that that was the real reason. Yeah. Well, all, so almost immediately, the women he starts engaging with, which is the headmistress, Geraldine Page, uh, Miss Martha, the uh, school teacherish girl who you said was... Um, What's her name? Uh, Elizabeth Hartman. Yeah, her. And then the Carol, who's like the sex pot, the younger girl. Yeah. They all start. And even the slave a little bit. Yeah, or even the 12-year-old girl. Yeah, yeah. They all, aside from the slave, Mae Mercer, they all start envisioning a future in a, like a life. They start constructing a life with him. Yeah. You know, like the Miss Martha says suddenly, hey, you know, will you take over here? Help, you know, after the war ends, will you stay on and help me develop the farm? The other girl, uh, Elizabeth Hartman, is like, you know, she's, this is the first time someone near her age is, uh, that's an opposite sex is there, and she's looking to start a relationship. Carol, the sex pot, seems like she almost wants to justify her own sexiness to herself because she's called like a harlot at one point by the other girls. They must think she's a little slutty. Yeah, but I don't know yeah. what they would give her because, you know, who else is she doing anything with around there? <laughs> so she almost immediately wants to, like, almost uh, kind of reinforce it in herself by. So when you get yeah. to the part where Eastwood's kind of, like, doing each thing with him, he, to me it kind of seems like he picks the most pragmatic person to go with because this girl, Carol, he ends up sleeping with uh, in the climactic scene is the one who's the least, you know, she's looking just for a one-night stand. Yeah, well, that and she, I mean, Stan, she catches him. Yeah, early like, on. Like, well, he's, when the night that they sleep together, he's not facing her, her stairwell. No, he's looking at, he's trying he's to figure He's like, out. <laughs> he's just trying to decide. Both women, the, the headmistress, the, Martha. And the teacher. And the teacher have and both invited him to bed. caught by, by her. By by the slut. And he's also, uh, in a way, defending himself against her because we've already known. She says to him, um, she says something really interesting later on because uh, you shouldn't do things that will make me jealous. Because in the middle of the movie, he is out like at a gazebo on, on the plantation grounds with the teacher character. Yeah. And they start making out. And No, she's out there with the sex pot, Carol. They're making out. Teacher comes out, tells her to get back to class. Eastwood starts messing around with her. She sees and she goes and hangs one of these. Yeah, puts the, the, the blue scarf or whatever on the door. Yeah, and then at, that actually gets the next patrol coming, and they and Eastwood almost gets you know thingied. So like it's already like you know the it's like hell hath no fury as woman scorn kind <laughs> it of was thing. Like the byline of this movie. Yeah. So it's yeah exactly. So it's like he it is almost doing the you know because. The other girl, if he were to sleep with the Miss Martha character, then it would open a can of worms with her. Yeah, yeah. If he were to sleep with the other girl, which I, th- I feel like he kind of wants to, it would open another can of worms. And almost immediately, when the Miss Martha character sees him and starts envisioning an idealistic life with him, the first thing she does is she takes down the sign to the women's seminary, which the, the, the patrol kind of tells them to, because you don't want to advertise that it's just a school of women for you know any marauders to burn it down or rape or pillage. And then secondly, she almost then tells the school teacher character hey you know after this is over i want to just tend to the farm you can have this and she's almost assuming her a daughter role so she won't be a competition in in trying to get eastwood's favor you know and the subplot here you said about miss martha is we we learn almost immediately 
that she was having an ancestral relationship with her brother. Yeah. And this Eastwood, she's looking to have Eastwood almost become a surrogate or a replacement for this because her brother went to war and is missing now. So it's a very, each one of these, it's, it, that's another thing in the movie that maybe people look as misogynistic, but each one of these women are damaged in a certain way. Yeah. And we find that out through these voiceovers or these flashbacks. And because of whatever is afflicting them psychologically, they start, you know, almost putting that, envisioning Eastwood as whatever they lack in their life. Yeah, yeah. You know, so... You know, you're right. Eastwood can't keep it in his pants, but I mean, it's at that point, it's like, what can you do? You yeah, know? I just, I feel like he, he, I don't know the word to explain to describe that what I feel about his character. Promiscuous. Well, I mean, there's that, but in terms of like, um... and at that point too, he's almost back on. He's on the mend. He's starting to yeah, get around. Yeah. So. It's just it's a very interesting character for him to play. I mean, and I'm certainly not as big of a kind of aficionado or expert with Eastwood movies as you are. But in terms of like the Eastwood movies that I know fairly well, he certainly doesn't play uh, a character like this in that. Okay, yes. I mean, he's macho and he's using that machismo and that sexuality. But at the same time, it's like he's not really sure how to wield it like responsibly (laughs) you know what i mean like he's doing it but he doesn't and and not that you know certainly not that i would or like an average guy would know what to do in this circumstance but in in the context of like cinema like eastwood usually plays a character like dirty harry or whatever where he's pretty much in control he's a no-nonsense guy yeah i mean he's you know in the in the in the dollars movies, you know, he's doing a pretty good job of playing two sides or being a some kind of bounty hunter or uh, he's just a guy that's like in control of his faculties. Whereas in this movie, it's almost more realistic of a character because he <clears throat> he's doing his he's he's doing it out of survival, but he doesn't really know the damage that he's doing. <laughs> By doing it, and that's I think goes to where some people say it's this is almost the reverberation of the 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 masculine or male destructiveness they can do in relationships or in yeah. life where they don't. It's especially we also have to really take in the uh, context when this movie was made and what was going on back then. Hence, to even to the point of them not knowing how to freaking even. Uh, you know, to promote this movie, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it comes off as such, which a, is weird. Cause you, you know, it, you got to put the seventies becomes a very gritty era for cinema, especially American cinema. And we get that. And that's the code. And that starts in the, in the late sixties with things like, uh, Bonnie and Clyde and yeah, the, Bonnie and Clyde and the, the, and the wild bunch and midnight cowboy. Yeah. And that's and, when they're, they're, um, they're kind of breaking since we've lost the code. They're almost pushing the boundaries like an easy rider or what's the, What's yeah, the, Easy Rider is a perfect example. Donald, what's the Donald Sutherland movie with what's her face as a prostitute? Uh, 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 Fonda, you know, is it Clute? Oh, yeah. Clute, maybe. Clute, yeah, maybe. You Clute. know, you have a lot of that, or the one with Elliot Gould where they're like they're 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 wife swapping. You know, it's like you yeah, have a lot yeah. of that kind of maybe. I forget what's what. that? Some names. Yeah. Like, so you get a lot of these movies where you're pushing the label either vi- with violence, as in Bonnie and Clyde, or but Wild Bunch, or this with sexuality. And but it's know. it's a great. Ex- I mean, uh, in a in a way, uh, 
what's the motorcycle one you just mentioned? Uh, Easy Rider. Easy Rider is kind of a perfect example because that has a very down ending. Yes. A very similar. To me, uh, almost a more realistic ending in life. Yeah. Uh, So it's not like that kind of stuff wasn't happening by the time this movie came out. But for a, a Hollywood studio to try to sell a movie based on a big star... With star power, you got to take into account that these other movies we're mentioning, for the most part, are not big. They're not like big Hollywood star movies. Yeah. They're, they're all come blossoming and yeah. becoming. On I mean, their way. like you know, Dustin Hoffman becomes a big star yeah, at some point. John Voight's not really that big at the time, and Peter Fonda's or Jack Nicholson or yeah, know, like Dennis he, Hopper. They're not. So it, they're. You run into the so though you can make the argument like okay, but that shit's already happening. So what's the big deal? You have to put it in the context of like these were low budget, like almost like the cusp of like the independent American film movement. Yeah, and then you have Universal putting out a Clint Eastwood picture, yeah. but and only so, because of and so their hesitation. Yeah, to, to, to how, <laughs> how, how, they don't even they're so baffled on how to market it because Don Siegel and Eastwood have have. Uh, Push this project. They were Eastwood and Siegel were work, working on two mules for Sister Sarah, a great western with Shirley MacLaine, and he got one of the producers gave him this book um, from 1966, The Painted Devil, and he read it in, in, in like one night, and he was this is a great project from you know he brings the Don Siegel, he says let's do this, and then that's they're the ones who go to Universal and push this, and you know Universal's probably like sure, you know it's fairly low budget. I mean it's it's all in one location. There's no action. Sequences. Yeah, they shot it like in ten weeks. Yeah, you know it's they very, shot it on location in, in Baton Rouge, in Louisiana. Baton Rouge, Louisiana. They use this um uh this place the the estate evidently it was this like dilapidated antebellum mansion that they actually with like a small fortune they completely restore the outside and uh it was historically was part of the ashland estates that mansions which were like the largest slave holding plantations in the state of louisiana so they shoot a lot of it there especially obviously all the exteriors even some of the interiors and then the rest they shoot in california on the sound stage to make the interiors yeah but it's relatively small budget for what they're doing here so uh, for them to to get that far, and I get you know they had an they had a uh, there was a couple versions of the script where they had one person coming to write it with a lighthearted ending, and Eastwood and Siegel weren't satisfied with that. They pushed for the regular ending where Eastwood's character dies, and then they do a rewrite, and then what you end up getting is there's um, two pseudonyms on the uh, yeah they actually it's Albert Maltz writes a script and he had worked with them before yeah. And he's, uh, and, he writes the first. And he version. writes the fr- the first version with the up ending. They don't like it, and they can't seem to see eye out eye with them. So then they hire this woman named Irene Camp to come in, and she, from my understanding, writes two two drafts of the script. Uh, and they like pieces of both of them. So then ultimately, somebody else comes. Claude Transverse. He's associate producer. The associate producer basically takes the the best parts of all three of those drafts. And makes one draft, and then that becomes your shooting script. That becomes the shooting script, and because it didn't really belong to Albert Maltz or Irene Camp, they end up using two pseudonyms uh, on the picture instead of their real names: John B. Shirley and Grimes Grease, G R I C E. So, uh, and Shemp Howard, yeah, Shemp Howard and Larry <laughs> Feinberg. Uh, so. <laughs> And Tom Healy. <laughs> <laughs> so you have uh, 
so there, yeah, so that you have this plot, and it becomes this very, uh, very quickly. You start getting these, uh, you know, it's. I guess it's kind of like a, like a, it's, it's, it's a classic kind of, uh, kind of like a uh, homage to these old gothic kind of storytelling, where these, you know, you have a this isolated mansion that, that's like in the middle of a war zone. I mean, at the beginning, you hear the cannons going off. Clearly, there was a battle that got Eastwood wounded, and he made it far enough away to collapse in front of their place. Sure. You see the smoke coming up, so they're right on the periphery, and. It also plays on uh, what ends up happening to people in war and what people end up doing in, in, or what they're capable of in a war environment, how people, you know, their, their personalities or their situations change. And it brings to mind for you and I, when we were going to college, remember the, the gentleman, uh, Sachs was his name? Yeah. We used to have a guy who was quite elderly at the time, and God rest his soul, I'm sure he probably passed he away by now. by now, yeah. Because he was quite elderly, but he was in World War II. He would hang out at our cafeteria at college and just, you know, to talk to the kids, the, the kids, the college kids there, and he would uh, recite these poems he made up, which was very, but you'd sit and talk to him, and he would tell you stories about him being in World War II. And the thing I loved about him, and it's something you get to see in, say, Kelly's Heroes that you don't see a lot, is every time you see a World War II movie, it's always about the battle. But you forget yeah. to realize that there's like, that's only really happening on the front lines. You have a surplus of people just sitting around doing nothing because there's so many uh, people and, and, and utilized forces and, and, and equipment. So there's half the time, if you're not on the front lines, you have nothing to do. But at the same time, you're injected into a world where you know Europe has been turned upside down. People can't get food. They can't get soap say so he would tell us these stories of like you know he one day would get into a line he thought was like a chow line and he gets to the front and it's like this this husband's his wife's pulling a train uh, and the and the husband's holding open like a like a pillowcase and they're giving him cans of food yeah. or he says he went to a whorehouse one time and he he had sex with a girl on a promise for a cake of soap because you know we've never had it especially in america since the civil war but you know, you imagine if you're in a war, who knows what, you, you know. Yeah. He was an interesting guy in that he always, he had all these poems about animals that I guess he had written. Yeah. They're almost and like he, haikus. And he would want to tell you those, but Dion and I would always be like. Oh, I thought it was much more fascinating. His, yeah, but we'd always want to talk to him about World War II. Because he was and a like, You guys don't want to hear about yeah, that. And I'm, I'm like, no, no, actually we do. Yeah. And we, so we would sit and have lunch or dinner with him. And he would tell us these stories. And so, yeah, like he said, he had, and like, you know, he had sex with a woman because he promised her a cake of soap. And then I think Dion was like, well, did you give her the cake? Did you go back and give her the cake? Yeah, of course I did. Yeah, or he met his. Uh, and he went to a hotel. He was yeah. at a whorehouse and he saw his brother who he hadn't seen in a long time. And they're like, what are you doing here? He's like, the same, same thing, thing you, you are. are. <laughs> you know, it's, so it's like. People... In a way, it's like, you know, it, it's the war was like the best time of his life in a lot of ways. So. Yeah. And it really shows you what you forget about or he tells that remember that story where he's saying like they, they were on a convoy that got off and they all ate like from the the grapes yeah. yeah and everybody then got sick maybe for whatever reason they had diarrhea they had diarrhea <laughs> but you can't stop a convoy so you have all these guys asses hanging off troop carriers shitting diarrhea you know so it's like it's these really very realistic problems in a context so the point of how this fits into this movie is that you see here you know you have a a, uh, an interesting from what I'm reading in research of this film that there's a lot to be said I guess of the uh, 
after the the North wins the the, war, the Civil War against the South, that kind of way of ending kind of ends where you have the glamorous uh, Southern bells on the estates, and they always talk about in storytelling in novels and stuff of the time that the degeneration of those leads to incest and bestiality or sexuality. Like it's like the the de-evolution of a culture where you kind of see that here where like, you know, the, the, the sexual depravity to a certain extent. And you have these girls who are being taught at the beginning of this, like how to like knit right or how to use a napkin or French stuff that they'll never use. Yeah. Like these old European kind of ways of how to talk to a man or take care of your man in a, in a context of, Right out, literally outside their gate, there's a war going on. Yeah. Any second, they could be raped and killed, and the place could be burnt down. So it's almost like it's its own microcosm. Of yeah, that. it is a lot of like burying your head in the sand and just going on with life when the world is falling around, falling apart behind around you. I mean, a little bit like in Dawn of the, like almost Dawn of the Dead, yeah, where they mess, where they're they've they've created they've created this little utopia inside the mall, and they just live there. And until the world literally comes crashing in on them. Yeah. It's in a way that's like, that's what they're doing here. Yeah. They're not, they don't want to kind of, especially since they're all women and there's not a man present, you know, they're very susceptible to any kind of evil yeah. outside. Have it be friendly from the fellow, federal, fellow Confederate troops that want to go and get some or from pillaging yeah. and, 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 you know, uh, the, the other um, side. And they, I think Don Siegel even says that the atmosphere of the film symbolized like a de- de- decayed culture of like the living dead and, and you know they're inhabiting yeah, the school yeah. there and then you interject Eastwood into it and then it kind of turns everything upside down yeah it's also interesting from like a dramatic standpoint from uh, you know like a, a screenwriting standpoint and in a lot of ways you know there's these kind of like archetypes of women that are all maybe not all but kind of represented in this group you know you have like the matriarch, who's a little, you know, nutty. She's having a, <laughs> she's having a, a, a sexual relationship with her brother. Yeah, and then you have the virginal teacher. teacher who's and naive. then you have, like, the sexually promiscuous... Younger girl, you know, Carol. Like, but, you know, she's she's certainly, you know, uh, you know, she's old enough to... She's a, she's a young adult. Uh and you know, in that you have the slave that comes a whole other you know the why she's like that, whatever insecurities you could examine that. I mean, there are movies that exist, you know books and stuff that will examine that. You have the slave, which kind of fits outside of everything, but she's also like I said in in a lot of ways she's she's like the most normal and certainly like the most likable uh most redeeming I mean, even when Eastwood flirts with her, she's like she's semi-flirtatious back. I mean, she it's like more that she like appreciates that he's... <laughs> and she also, I think... You know, is, like for a white man, you, you know... You, you, yeah, you got a lot of... You must have rooster blood in you, you know? And, and I feel like she... He... I feel like he lets his guard down, kind of, in a sense, where he's talking to her because you're a slave, I'm a prisoner. But we're alike. Yeah, we're, alike yeah, we're alike. both trapped here. Yeah, and then he immediately says to her, like, if you get me out of here, I'll help you find your brother. Or is it her brother or her? I think it's a, like her a lover. Like, like lo- her lover. Yeah. They were never married. She says something like, we weren't married, but we were together. You know, like together. And then what's her face is uh, the, the, the headmistress's brother, he sold him off. Yeah. And Eastwood immediately says, well, if if you help me get out of here, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll promise you I'll help you find 
you know, and who knows if he even means that or if he, you know, but yeah, yeah. it seems then like in the next scene they have together where they're, it's almost like, yeah, she is being flirtatious with him, but I feel like she kind of sees through a little about what he's doing. I think so too. You know, cause she's she, like, she's, she, like I said, maybe not even most redeeming, but she's like the, she's the one that's like most on the level. Yeah. And we've learned. And you can tell he's, you're right. He's, she's also the one that he's most comfortable with because she's like the headmistress asks her to shave him and she shaves him and he and she does a spiel about how she doesn't you know she doesn't think a man's face should be like as smooth as a baby's bottom you know that you know god would have not given you a beard if you weren't supposed to have a beard and so when the headmistress comes in and he's shaven she says something and then he says well i he repeats what she told him what the slave told him to her most like it's almost in front of her like almost like a wink like it's like an aliens remember when when sigourney reaver and they have that situation with michael bean where he's like you know we'll just nuke the planet from orbit it's the only way to be sure and he like winks at her it's like that yeah yeah. there's like a kinship there and she the slave appreciates it yeah may mercer um she's a woman who it was a blues singer who I never heard of, but evidently there's this big um, uh, segment of the population, uh, African-Americans, who in the 30s and 40s and 50s, because of the oppression and, and racism here, they went to Europe. Uh, a lot of authors did that, you know, established authors in the 40s and 50s, right from, say, France specifically. And she was one of these girls who went over and made a career in, say, France singing. So she was singing, you know, in 1960. She was huge in Europe, this girl. And she comes back and she acts a bit. And she is uh, Mrs. Russell in the scene in Dirty Hair, which is one of my favorites, who when the young black kid is killed by the sniper and he goes to the scene, he says, anybody know who the boy is? And she says, his name is Charlie Russell. Uh, he's my son. He was only 12 years old. And that's in the in the context of the movie. It's when Eastwood starts almost taking it seriously. Like, this guy's, you know, this is... But really serious, yeah, yeah. you know. But that's her. So uh, I think she plays a great r- role in this movie. And we also learn in one of the flashbacks when she's talking about the brother of the mistress that he rapes her, attacks yeah. and rapes her, you know. And near the end of the movie, when Eastwood get, becomes unhinged and gets a little fucking crazy, he says that he says something about to, to maybe I'll take you too, like have my way with you. And she's like, you know, motherfucker, yeah, you know, over my, you'll be raping a fucking dead black girl because I ain't going to let that happen again. And Eastwood almost, you know, steps back. And she's also the only one who is kind of like, yo, yo, you need to chill. Remember with, near the end with Eastwood, she's like, you got to get out. Of it. Just leave us. Like, you know, shit ain't going to go right if you keep. She's yeah, trying yeah. to talk rationally to him, and, and he's not listening to it near the end when everything starts spiraling out of control. So that's a very interesting character. And I think from the speculation I had read online recently, like I think the class issue here is handled superbly, where you immediately know the headmistress, Geraldine Page, is kind of like a bitch to her. You know, there's certainly like a, you know, you're, I own you, so you're going to listen to what the fuck I say. Yeah, yeah. You know, and you could tell she resents it because she makes like a face early on about what she's saying she doesn't agree or whatever you yeah, know yeah. to herself so i think it's it's hell it's it's handled really well the idea yeah of it's slavery funny that you brought that up uh because not, if, not that but that you brought up that there is like this kind of retrospective controversy because like it never would have occurred to me like well because they're, they're bringing it up now because they're saying since yeah, yeah. Coppola did not but it's i find it interesting that that's becoming an issue because it's well, it got really. It's the you, least problematic part of that, yeah, <laughs> you it, know, in terms of characters. And yeah, stuff. if you go online, it, it gets pretty messy. Where they're talking about the new movie, the new version of this, they're like, you know, oh, you you're, you know, you you can only handle white women doing things. You won't put a black person. It's like, oh Jesus, you know, it's it's a very polarizing, yeah, sensitive topic. So, 
I mean, I don't. It's either here or there. If you agree with Sofia Coppola for making that choice of not is of omitting this slave character, yeah, I mean, who knows? you know, who knows what you know she's going for in her version? Because also, I from what I've read online is she's going. It's almost like a fantasy fairy tale. Her because it's told from the woman's point of view. Um, I think the Eastwood character played by um, what's his face, uh, Colin, Colin Farrell. Farrell. He is a little more subdued in the movie, you know. He's he may be a little more likable. I don't know, you know. So, uh, you know, compared to the book I read, that this the movie is a little more stunning. The 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 seventy one movie, they make it a little more spicy, and it's a little more crazy. When it gets crazy, it gets crazy, you know. So I hear that if you see the movie first before reading the book, it's almost like a disappointment. Yeah, you should yeah. read the book first and then take it and then go see the movie because you'll be pleasantly surprised. You know, but you start immediately seeing like, so you have the, all these little issues these, these women are having with the, the well, they're all falling in love with him. Yeah. And who, and, and he's certainly embracing, provoking it. Yeah. it a little bit. And it's also because of the war and what the war does to people. Like, you know, uh, the other woman hasn't gotten laid the Miss Martha, the, the headmaster character since the war started because her brother left, you know? <laughs> And and then the other girl, you know, the the the, the head school teacher girl, uh, who you know she is a, still a virgin, but she you know she certainly wants to get romantically involved. She never thought about even leaving the the school, and she has plans to stay at the school for the rest of her life, almost like a nun would. Yeah, yeah. And then you have the other girl who uh, Carol, who's the sexual sex pot, who almost wants to like. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, even like when he's. They're like giving him like a sponge bath, and she's like, "Well, if you want to go to your closet, like I would, you know, I'll, I'll scrub things, the areas that you wouldn't scrub." And the other one's like, "Get the hell out of here!" So yeah, it's very, yeah. you know, it's it's very contemptuous at the time. So. And then you got the little girl, which is another thing, is because she completely, she's like, "I thought you remember." She's like, "I love you," and you know, he does his best humoring her. And then there's that horrific part in the movie where he he ends up going crazy, and and that once he loses her. That's when, like, she's like, we're going to kill this movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because uh, you even have her who's, she's even saying, like, you know, uh, I love you, you know, I love you just as much. She says something to Eastwood, like, you know, that you, she even thinks that she's going to end up with Eastwood and she's 13 years old. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, another story that brings to mind much uh, like this is, I know something you have a huge affinity for, like I, the... Short story by Andrew uh, Ambrose uh, Bierce called "Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge." Yeah, I thought about that a lot while we were watching this, actually, because that also plays into the Southern Gothic. T- I mean, uh, some people have called that the best American short story of all time. Yeah, you know, and that's something that um, they made a the, they made a French short short film that had no dialogue that ended up airing on the Twilight Zone, and there's. Uh, it became a lost episode because they like only aired it once. Because the only ones. yeah, they only had rights to one thing, and then uh, is some really good adaptations of it on radio in the '40s and '50s on suspense and on I think Escape with Vincent Price and Joseph Cotton, uh, and it's a story much like this, which uh, that's almost more of a, a psychological horror, I guess, or I guess it'd be a thriller because it's not really anything horrifying, but it's one of the first examples of um, a story that is not playing on a linear level yeah told through flashback and uh from a certain point of view but it, it this movie uh almost certainly lives in that realm for me you know and it's also a similar time period yeah it's civil war yeah, yeah he's a southern guy that gets caught and he's about to get hung for some traitors act and he's able to escape and it's 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 a great short story if you can find it i mean it's it's um uh, 
uh, out on a, on a lot of additions. And, and Siegel, Don Siegel, the director, also said that this was a combination of, this story was a combination of Ambrose, Pierce, Edgar Allan Poe, Tennessee Williams, and Truman Capote. At the yeah, time. yeah. Well, it's also it's interesting if you read things, and unfortunately, I'll, you know, I, if anything I say is kind of, I'm sure, misquoting him to a certain extent. Uh, but like the things he says about this movie in terms of uh, Eastwood or Siegel, Siegel, which is like, um, it's a movie about women, but it's not for women. <laughs> yeah, there's that, and it's also about how like women. Oh, the, yeah, they be, be like cold-blooded murderers. Just like the mafia. And, yeah. <laughs> and also about, like, he said, there is also a quote where he says something about, you know, in, in uh, insinuating that, like, all women, to a certain extent, like, want to castrate men. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why. That's why it's, that's the misogyny why I, comes into play. Yeah. That's why I'm saying it's, you know. like, it's a very interesting, uh, would be a very interesting juxtaposition. Uh, to, well, almost, I'm sure to even watch these kind of this and the Sofia Coppola movie kind of back to back and see, see how they play to see this the same basic storyline told through uh, totally different perspectives and not even I'm not even talking about through the perspective of the character like what characters it's the POV but also just you know a story just told by two different completely by different a man story, and a woman two different storytellers yeah, yeah. I mean I th- I think. Uh, Siegel means with the mafia thing is that you know people at the time again that you know you think of people you know uh, who's capable of killing you know and I think he's I, I speculate he's trying to say that even anybody in a certain situation even a group of women could be just as cold-blooded and calculating as say people in the mob and where at the end they decide they have to rid themselves of Eastwood yeah, yeah. for whatever reason uh, you know and, he, and he's, it also gets into there's some real interesting play in the movie where you have um you know, Eastwood is certainly flirting with the three characters we described, the headmistress, the, the teacher, and then the promiscuous woman. But then you start having these different fantasies about it, where Eastwood's having a fantasy of, like, making out with each of them, you know, even in the same fantasy. But then you have the night before he's invited upstairs, you have the headmistress having a fantasy where she is having a menage a trois with Eastwood with the teacher. Yeah. And I even got a hint of when they take the beginning, they take the sign down and she says to to, to the to the character, the school teacher, you can, you know, almost like in a daughterly role, you can have, I'm going to leave it all to you, bequeath it to you when I die, or yeah. you can have it. That there was almost like a kind of sexual tension there on her part. Like she doesn't know... You know, it's almost like the exploration of, you know, is she a motherly character or does she, you know. Oh, I mean, yeah, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't get that. But, in you know, in hindsight, when you say it, like, I can kind of see what you're you know, saying. But as And then viewer, she's the one, then, it's not even Eastwood who's who has the fantasy of the menage a trois. Yeah. It's her having the fantasy of, and, and then it ends with the very classic, I forget the name of the painting, where Jesus is naked being held by Mary and I forget who else you know, after being crucified and they then, uh, uh, redesign that and they do the exact same thing with Eastwood and the two like that. And she wakes up and she's almost startled at what she was dreaming. And she looks up on her wall. And again, going with that, like Southern Gothic theme, you have like the, you know, the painted poster of the Colonel and her on, you know, her brother on the wall. Yeah. You have that a lot, you know, in, in those Southern, you know, even like on an episode of Scooby-Doo when they're going to investigate like a, you know, a Southern antebellum mansion, you have like the ghost general on the wall, you know? So you have them fantasizing 
and then like literally the next scene when he's discovered to go to the to the horn dog's room and the school teacher is so horrified on catching him in that scene where I love that I, I didn't I forgot the shot composition where like that beautiful girl Joanna Harris her she's naked and she's over Eastwood and her ass is yeah it's like it's his POV and it's like her ass is blocking the doorway yeah and then her ass moves down and you see and it's like it's it's a brilliant you know uh use of cinematography and she freaks out the school teacher and he gets up to try to like, hey, this is not what you look at. You know, he's trying to calm her down and he's limping. And she starts hitting him with the candelabra she had as a lighting source. And he falls down the stairs and gets a compound fracture. I think shatters yeah, his tibia. She fucks. She's like, I hope you fucking yeah, die. Yeah, I hope you son of a bitch. I hope you die. She has a breakdown up there. And then the, the, the headmistress comes out of the room and realizes what's happening. And then almost immediately, you have a parallel scene of like, instead of them all having a menage a trois with them, yeah. They instead have a, uh, uh, it's not a sexual encounter, but they ha- they operate and they fucking cut his leg off. Yeah, yeah. Within seconds of him falling down the stairs, the headmistress... Uh, like, it's going to get gangrenous. We got to cut this shit off. Yeah, and, and, the, and the slave, May, May Mercer's like, you, really? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> sure? Are you sure about that? <laughs> yeah. It just happened. I mean, and she's like, no, your place, or whatever she says. And then, it, and it, so it, it, when I was little, in, in the first viewings of this movie, without knowing it, it seemed almost completely vindictive to me. Yeah. But then now when I watch it, I'm kind of used to it. So uh, what's your take on it? Oh, I think it is. I think he's right. She is captured. Because when he wakes up and it's gone, which we'll get to, he's just like, you bitch. Yeah. (laughs) He's like, you did this because I didn't go to your bed. And I love it. And I think think that's definitely part of it. Yeah, and I love that scene with Eastwood. To me, it's like some of his finest acting. She's very good in this movie. Geraldine Page? Geraldine Page is very good in this movie because like I I was saying, even with... um, there was something else, another thing we were just talking about before, where I was saying, like, I don't even know if she knows it's her motivation. You know, oh, she yeah. plays it in a way where... Oh, with the letting, letting him, uh, t- keeping oh, him and not giving away yeah, all the, yeah. to, the, to the Like, patrols. she plays it in this way that's very realistic. I mean, over the top and theatrical, which makes her a very entertaining performance, but also, but realistic in this way where she's being, she's being driven by motivations... And as a viewer, you don't know if what she's saying is her motivation is the right is what's actually motivating her. And at least for me as a viewer, I read into it even that like I'm not even sure she she knows if that's really her. That's motivation. a very good point. Yeah. Like it, like she, it's almost like she's playing the subconscious, or she's telling herself that yeah. she's trying to you like, know. This is, is it I'm doing it for this or... reason. And she wants to get that's some what she's or... telling herself. Yeah. But she's really doing it and maybe denying it to herself that that's why she's doing it. That she is being vindictive, vindictive in this point. Like, I believe she, I believe that she believes that she's saving his life by but, cutting, by cutting his leg off. But I think the inner motivation is that she is fucking jealous of this asshole. Yeah. Who she brought him into his ha- into her house. She's taken care of him. And she's offering him like a role on the farm. And yeah, a subservient like, I will role. Let, you know, like I'm going to let you, like, you could fuck I'm, the shit out of me. I'm, you know? I'm asking you to be like basically my husband and, and, oh, and be here with us. And when he, you know, chooses somebody else in that moment, I think, yeah, I think that's part of it. I think it's that she's, no matter what she's telling herself, I think ultimately she is being, you know, 
vindictive bitch, as, she, Eastwood's, <laughs> as Eastwood's character would say. See, uh, Geraldine Page had a big uh, presence on Broadway and then specifically doing Tennessee Williams plays, Glass Menagerie and stuff. So Eastwood says he was a little intimidated acting. Uh, that and I think she was married to like Rip Torn. She was married to Rip Torn and she ended up dying, I think, of a heart attack in 88. We can get to a little later on, sadly. But, uh, you know, the first day on set, Eastwood was a little you know, taken aback or a little like, you know, uh, uh, self-conscious of himself. But then she kind of, I guess, uh, quickly belayed that by saying, you know, I am a big fan of yours, specifically in the Rawhide days. And he's like, oh, you liked Rawhide? You know, so that kind of got him comfortable with the thing. But I think she's really good in this. And she brings a level of like evil or, uh, you know, just... Well, she plays plays into that. There's a very... um... To a certain, you know, not it's not the same performance, but there is this element of, uh, of uh, what's her name? Who? Uh, like Streetcar Named Desire. Oh, Blanche or uh, Vivi- uh, um, Vivian Lee. Vivian Lee. There's this that's like this kind of insanity. Blanche Dubois? Is that? Yeah, it? yeah. Like this kind of. This a little bit of this crazy uh, insanity that's being suppressed by this proper, you know, Southern Belle, like what's proper, and <laughs> yeah. you know, like a little bit of, of of what's bubbling under the surface. Well, that's what they talk about where the collapse of the Southern culture is. There, there's a subtext. That's what I said. There's associated with like a transgressive of transgressive sexual acts and misogyny and incest where it's yeah, like yeah. you know and, and you know i mean that's a little broad strokes to say that specifically i'm in no nowhere near a uh, any kind of uh app person on southern gothic novels and stuff but yeah, yeah. you know I, behind the scenes here you, you get a little of that also what i like at the very beginning of this you know we, we y- y- it starts off and it uh you have these these great photos um you know to add a little context of history here the beginning of the film you have the first shot you have i think it's lincoln visiting uh right after the uh battle and uh the next shot is i think they've superimposed eastwood there like it looks very much like eastwood and then you start seeing uh photos of a big of 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 battle and, and people getting killed and then when that stops you see the 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 results of war and at the time there was two photographers, uh, Alexander Gardner and Matthew Brady. And Alexander Gardner went down, took these pictures where the bodies had not been taken off the battlefield yet. And these have become, I think still to this day, they say these are the most significant wartime photos because he took these pictures, he brought them to New York, and they were exhibited in the photographer Matthew Bradley's um, gallery. And this was the first time anybody had seen the horrors of war. Yeah. And I think people at the time, um, commentators even said, like, he literally brought the bodies and displayed them on the streets where uh, he used this process where he had a camera that at the same time, almost like you would do with 3D, say, with um, Viewmasters, where they would take two pictures at the same time. So you can, through a viewer, look at these images and they would be 3D. And that was the big yeah. thing as well, is you can get copies of this and people can sit home in their parlors and have the viewer and they would yeah, look yeah. at these. And Yeah, I mean, the, that's another, people don't, I think and these some, are the some people don't realize that, you know, 3D photography, that kind of thing that you're talking about was very big for a while. Yeah. Uh, there, I remember going to a, uh, they had a tri- like a temporary exhibit at uh, at the Met. 
mm. here in New York City and they had a big uh, exhibit of those things. It's actually, oddly enough, it's something that the guitarist for Queen Brian May is way into and he's actually released books with the viewers of these old photographs, of like, you know, curated these like big coffee table books of old photo- photographs like this to, to be viewed that way yeah. in kind of three dimension. And a lot of them are, you know, not surprisingly sexual in nature. Yeah, yeah, of you know, a lot of like nude women and sexual acts, but then there's also this other stuff like yeah. what you're talking about. And this was the first time people, you know, this is at a time in the 1860s where, um, you know, you weren't even getting photos in newspapers really yet. You, I think the only way they can put, you'd have like a wood etching of some sort or a, a lithograph or a stencil, you know, that would be, so you wouldn't even getting photos in newspapers. So for people for the first time, uh, photography is basically a new art form, let alone them having been exposed to any kind of documentary, documentarian style of photography. Sure. To see the effects of the battlefield, this was a, a huge, yeah. stark reality for people. I mean, people. it wasn't like, there wasn't news. I mean, there wasn't like news on television. No, no. I mean, you didn't get that till like the Vietnam War, yeah. even, you know, and that was the thing with combat was... photographers in World War II and World War One. So for people, this was startling for people to actually see the horrors of war, bodies laying out for days on end. And that's what you see at the beginning of this movie, these photos, these very yeah. um, classical photos. And then over that, you have the Lalo Schifrin soundtrack of like just almost like a snare beat. And you yeah, have this yeah. poem that is read by Eastwood, which is kind of fascinating. It's like, a, it's almost like a, it's, it bookends the movie, this poem, but it's like a cautionary tale. Like, you know, uh, don't fear the soldier, dark she will be you. The, the raven will come and death will come marching at the beat of a drum. It's very, very odd. Yeah. Don't you know? fear the reaper. Yeah. Don't fear the reaper. So, you know, you frame this around this, this, this war and, and, uh, yeah, you know, you have these the 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 thing I didn't remember in this too is you have the aspect of the animals where you have the crow at the beginning. Yeah, well, this the whole mo- the ver- the movie is very circular. Yes, it, uh, to the know, point where she it, the, the, not just bookended by this poem, but there's a lot of there's actually a handful of kind of really important thematic elements that bookend this movie. Yeah, you have the little girl who's out picking mushrooms, finds him. He's was near death. By the end of the movie, she's picked mushrooms to kill him, and, and, and he's dead. And he's dead. <laughs> you have this crow that's injured, that's tied to like the banister in the beginning because it's like, well, when you're healed, then you, you're, you, yeah, then you can fly away. Your uh, wing is mended, and then you kind of forget about it. It's trying to get away, and you know, crows usually thematically or symbolically are associated with darkness or evil or yeah. death. And then at the end of the movie, when he dies. They cut to a reveal the next morning, and it's like up uh, in the background, down on the ground. They're on the second floor. Is the is, is the team of people with his body, and we're looking through the banister. You see the crow hanging there, dead. Yeah, yeah. Like it died. Who knows how long ago it they died? They just forgot about it because these people. <laughs> yeah, he's getting them all hot. So and it's, it, yeah, it's kind of like frightening in a way. Yeah, you yeah. know that, and then this little turtle she has, and. Uh, the, the little the twelve year old has this turtle she keeps and she's trying to like you know get flies to feed it and East was very good with her the entire time until until he loses his yeah shit. he loses his shit when she cuts his leg off and he goes immediately he's like I'm gonna go for, you know I don't care what I'm doing I can I'll ha- I'm gonna you know he kind of like loses it yeah yeah where he's like I'm gonna have my way with anyone you want and he goes he goes down to the cellar and that's when the the slave girl's like you need to chill this is you yeah. know what are you doing and then he gets drunk off of some wine comes up and he wants to he 
steals the uh, a pistol, the, the musket out of the, the headmistress's room and then stumbles across these letters and they're actually, I guess, like... Love like letters. Love of. letters from her brother and Eastwood realizes that she is, uh, you know, she's having this uh, incestual relationship. So I guess once he gets hammered, his intention is to come and kind of like lay it out like, oh, you think this headmistress is like, you know, is, is proper in a Southern Belle, but she's, you know, she's full of shit, but he doesn't... He doesn't at all. That doesn't at all come to pass. Instead, <laughs> he it, it just kind of gets fucking crazy. Yeah, he gets crazy. The, the the little girl runs up to ask him something. He throws the turtle and kills the turtle. And he immediately is really like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't like, mean to do that. It snaps him kind of out of his yeah. craziness. And he's like, I'm so sorry. But then at that point, the girl's like, I hate you. I fucking hate you. You, you know, she doesn't swear. But then, and then <laughs> you he, motherfucker. Yeah. And then Eastwood looks at her, uh, at, looks at the headmistress. And she's like, and he says like, you know, you look what you've done. You've made you've made this turn into this. Why didn't you castrate? Why didn't you fucking castrate me? You know, literally, where they yeah. almost did symbolically. Because you know, it's like the they're able to control him when he's an invalid at the beginning because he's there. He's you know under the guise where he's locked in a room. They're kind of healing him. Yeah, he can't walk. But then when he's starting to get his 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 faculties about him, he's starting to get more mobile. They get him crutches, and then you know he's he's almost able to walk fully again when he starts. When he goes upstairs to, to to sleep with one of the women, but then the it's like the only way they're able to 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 all share him is in this state of him being an invalid or being you know yeah, yeah. Uh, in the convalescence. So they kind of yeah. the, which is interesting. I mean, that's an interesting point. You know, maybe they, that's also maybe you know maybe thematically in the movie, but also maybe motivational wise. Like we make we're gonna she makes him a cripple basically yeah. so that they can keep him. And they're making light so that of he it. Wrote, run away. Yeah, and they're making light of it. Like the one girl, the sexually promiscuous girl, is like she, the, 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 like you know, you. I'm sure you can still fuck me. Yeah, I don't care if you have one <laughs> leg. I don't care if you have two legs. And it's and he's like, and he starts. You could tell he's kind of going nuts about this. He's like, you know, there's a lot of things. You know, I don't have to put two socks on. I don't have to. You know, you could tell it's really fucking getting to him yeah, yeah. as it would. I when mean, he wakes up and his it's leg's such gone. a it's such a fucked up scene. <laughs> it would have been even more effective had we known. Had we not known what they had done? Oh yeah, I mean that's that also a that would have been a much more like her like horror movie reveal. Yeah, but it is incredibly disturbing. I mean, it's incredibly powerful and disturbing scene. The amputations. Yeah, so I understand why they have that scene there. They have no. They pull no punches, and then you know they they. Uh... They really have n- nothing to put him under with, so they just get him hammered to the yeah, point it's where like he's... she's trying to saw through his leg, and you don't see it, but all you see is that she's struggling. With yeah, it, you could see and that she's barely doing. It. Yeah, you <laughs> so could... you're like, oh god. And, that, and this was something again, uh, getting back to the Civil War. This was something that suddenly people had to know about. Doctors had to know how to cut because in the old days, you know, you can you take a like a, a musket ball. Consequentially, that's not a lot of. That won't do a lot of damage, but the association of the object in you with the foreign body and then the getting infection. the infection I mean, gangrene. Got everybody. Yeah. So you would have these battlefield situations where doctors had to, they didn't know what to do to treat it. So they just like, we have to yeah, amputate. Yeah. So well, you that's have like these, the whole beginning of Dances with Wolves. Yeah. They take his leg off. Or, it's like they're going to just cut it off. Yeah. Because they're like, what the fuck else are we going to do? And then he's like, I'm going to, and then he basically says, I'm going to kill myself instead of that. And then that somehow motivates like the general or man. Like, you know what? Give him to my doctor. Yeah, my doctor will save his leg. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's cool. The quack that the rest of you guys have to Let's deal have with. this movie be a little longer. <laughs> uh, so you have this this situation where back then the, 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 they, there was a lot of amputations. 
you know, you can go online and you could probably see they actually have like old physician manuals of the proper way to amputate a leg or an arm, the angle you'd cut so that you can uh, actually sew up a certain way that the, the skin. So, you know, you don't want to cut straight. You want to cut, say, like on a V yeah. so that you can bring the, both of them together. And so... The, the other problem with this was, aside from being horrifically painful and probably in a situation where you had no, I mean, I don't even know if they were using ether at this time, yeah, yeah. but you, you know, you're, you're, you're doing this with no anesthetic. <laughs> yeah, but basically like, you, you know, know, you're sawing like dances with wolves. They're just like giving them a belt that fucking bite off. Yeah. And that's, and then, you know, what happens is they would give these people, um, morphine for the pain. And then after the civil war, you had this epidemic of morphine addicts because there was no thought about this is an addictive drug sure, yeah. as well as any kind of almost like kind of today where it's like, you know, once the, sadly the soldiers, you know, they don't want to take care of them. So you have this epidemic of like, you know, uh, morphine addicts, uh, into, you know, that plays a lot into the Chinese, uh, you know, people like in the opium dens and of, of the sure. turn of the century and the well, yellow I mean, peril, even, you know, you know, whatever, a couple of decades later, or even, you know, whenever, like Coca-Cola. Oh, with the cocaine in it. The cocaine the and, you know, like nobody yeah. really thought of, about the consequences of drug use. I mean, there wasn't, it yeah, no seemed one, like it was on anybody's radar yet. Yeah. So the, these poor people were, were getting hooked on morphine because of the pain of, of amputation or some horrible atrocity because of this war. And then they're stuck on this, you know, morphine's up there with heroin. I mean, that's a fucking hard drug to kick, if not impossible, especially for this time. So you have a situation where they, they she, the headmistress immediately decides to cut the fucking leg off. Yeah, she's like, it's going to get you know? green. And it's, it's a situation where, you know, maybe for the first time, they bring them all into the dining room and you have the, all the women around, the girls, and it all becomes like they're all in agreement. And then she's like, okay, all the girls younger than a certain age go to bed. And she keeps like the school teacher, Carol, who's the promiscuous one, the slave, and then they're trying to figure out how to do it. And then she just grabs a saw. Yeah. And then well, she's like looking through a medical book. Yeah. And uh, the slave's like, hey, listen, you know, let's just try to do this as quick as possible. And we'll just try to tie up any, you know, veins we find that start bleeding profusely. And Eastwood's in and out of it. I don't know. You know, and they're just plying them with alcohol. And like you said, you start seeing them cut. And it's a great scene, like the shadow on the wall. Yeah, and, yeah. and it really gives you the the idea of how hard it must be taking a hacksaw to like a you know, to your tibia or, you know, or, you know, whatever she's cutting through down there. And then this next scene where he wakes up out of a fog and he's like, Hey, you know, I'm so sorry about what happened. And, <laughs> sorry. I lost my shit. Yeah, you know, I was just nuts. What happened again? Yeah, and I, I apologize. And then he's like, you know, uh, I'm grateful to you, but I need you to adjust the, the, the bandages because my, my leg is killing kill, me. Yeah, and they're like, well, there's no bandages what to adjust. What you talking about? Yeah, there's no... <laughs> what you talking about, Eastwood? Yeah. And he's like, there's no, he's like you know, it's killing me. And he's like, and they're like, no, you know, there's there's no bandage. He's like, what are you talking about? I can feel my toes. And then he it's great. He, he kind of sits up out of bed and he's really pale looking and he flips the covers back. And well, like, first he looks at the covers. Oh, and he sees that like... He, he only has a left foot <laughs> under the covers. Yeah, so he flips the covers back and he's... Only got his right foot down past the knee. And then he has he just fucking grows. He's like, you, you bitch. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a great reaction. He's like, you did this on purpose. And then he, at that point, he's unhinged. And he goes to the, to the school teacher. And he's like, you, the virgin bitch. You know, he's yeah, like, you yeah. get the hell out of here. And he's, you know, he's kind of loses his shit there. Rightfully so, in a certain degree. Yeah, yeah. You know, and they say that leg, the, the, the stump they use, ends up showing up on this, the $6 million man who we just talked about. Uh, what was that? Um we might talk about that next, next week. Yeah, we, <laughs> <laughs> we bring that up next week on our next movie. But uh, 
so it's funny that you know the stuff that they reuse so it's also interesting because clearly they do a really good job of oh, having you, a stand-in oh yeah that's yeah because you do see him like walking around with the crutches and it looks and it's like clearly him. like a guy with a, a guy there's clear it's not like it's a, not major dan or yeah they're not cgi yeah or they're not like pinning it back like to his ass you yeah know? it's clearly they got a guy that looks a lot like east it has the same hair from the back and he's the walking same around size and everything yeah and it's, it's quite startling that they turn him into, like, an invalid again. Yeah, yeah. Try that's to, what I was saying. You know, is that they do kind of... It's like they cripple him so that he can't run away kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's, and it's a really weird juxtaposition for her having these sexual fantasies with him. And then the parallel is they actually end up, you know, have this yeah. other kind of menage a trois with him to take a leg off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, uh, but it's... it. Then you have the evil or the... I wouldn't call it the evil, I guess. But it's like the... You know the motivations of these characters because then it almost turns into like a Twilight Zone episode or a Tales from the Crypt and a, a typical EC Comics story where once he kills the turtle uh, and he's he's like he's like oh my god look what you've done to me you should and he storms off the school teacher who hasn't talked to him since she found him with the sexually promiscuous yeah, girl she, she knocked him down the stairs yeah she runs off to go to, to go reconcile with him and feels bad and then she ends up. Barring the door, and I guess they have sex then. Yeah, I think that's the implication. Yeah, and then the next day, he's kind of got his faculties back. He's feeling good about himself. Yeah, he feels he feels he feels bad about what happened, and he's he's saying like I'm. But there's this moment where do you believe that there's he's sincere at that point? That he's gonna run off. That he's gonna leave with her. No, but yeah, but yeah, I mean the whole narrative there. Like he's like he is really sorry about what happened. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Which is even more fucked up. That's what I said. Like he's just. I think he's a bit. He's. It's really look. It's a really interesting character study of not only his character but this whole ensemble. I mean, I think that's like the biggest uh, takeaway. Plus, you know, the biggest positive of this movie, the takeaway is, I think, for me anyway, as a viewer, is that it's a very interesting kind of unique story. And this character study of all these people, and I, like I was saying earlier, for me, uh, he's a guy that's not in control of almost anything. Yeah, <laughs> for the entire well, he movie, he thinks he is. Maybe. What, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's, <laughs> we're talking about. Uh, I'm sure I did it when we talked about Big Trouble in Little China, but I, when I did Wrong Reel and we talked about John Carpenter, I said the interesting thing about Jack Burton and Big Trouble in Little China is that Jack Burton thinks he's the hero, but he's really the sidekick. Yeah, me, Jack Burton. <laughs> but in a lot of ways, like Eastwood thinks he's got everything under control, but but he really doesn't. And I find that really interesting and, and kind of what I was uh, talking about earlier in the uh, in this podcast, which is... It's a character that I'm not... You're not used to Eastwood being kind of out of control in that way. Like, yeah. not having kind of everything kind of figured out. Well, I think that's the reason that was what allured him to the project. Because he thought it was a good departure for... You know, to start yeah. doing something that's not the same. You know, you know Western or... Sure. You know. I mean, at first, like you say, he's wielding this power of masculinity without any real idea what the consequences are. Which is in a lot of way what we we're talking about with Play Misty for me to a certain extent. Yeah. Like wielding this thing. And and also I think to a certain extent 
that's a little misogynistic and that like this like his masculinity would drive everybody crazy you know, yeah. i think it's, it's it's kind of you know that thing says a lot and is not necessarily completely realistic but in the context of the movie it makes sense uh but he, so he's just he's going along and just kind of out of control like and and getting and kind of slowly spiraling out of control until he finally just loses his shit over over the fact that his leg got cut off. But I do believe that when he comes around at the point you're saying after he, you know he has you know this reconciliation with the with the teacher, I do think that he's I think he is sincere, but I think he's also naive. To think that everything's going to be okay now. Well, it's, it's almost like, um, like I said earlier, I don't think he, he was even thinking of the implications of him trying to individually swoon these girls. Yeah, he, It never occurred to him the jealousy that could be harbored by all of them now yeah. to, to try to vie for his affection. So, you know. But even when he sees it, he still doesn't get it. Yeah, I think like it's... he's like he's he's lost a leg because of it. yeah, and he's still <laughs> he's living proof of it. But I don't think he really understands it. And the interesting part is what leads to this kind of uh, finale of the movie is that it's all in subtext of of dialogue, which is uh, the Geraldine Page character is like she's do she springs this up under the guise of like maybe we can get him to. F- chill out and forgive us if we make him a big dinner. Yeah, he he immediately leaves and the school teacher girl runs after him and they end up fornicating like we said, but there's everybody else is still in the, like in kitchen, the kitchen like shocked uh, at the turtle being dead. dead. dead turtle. You know, and that girl is completely like, you yeah, know, yeah. I fucking hate you, the 12-year-old. And then Geraldine Page realizes and it almost gets like, you know, a light goes on like she becomes yeah, yeah. evil and she's like, you know, maybe we can smooth things over with a with a nice meal we'll make a nice meal yeah. he know he loves those mushrooms wink wink right amy and then amy <laughs> looks at her and turns back and is like yeah mushrooms i'll go pick them just right <laughs> i know exactly where to yeah. get them. motherfucker <laughs> and then Kill the next scene turtle. and and, it, and then that scene is there's so much tension there where uh it's it's everyone's uh, minding their p's and q's everyone's very respectful eastwood again is sober and he's yeah, and, yeah, he, and you and you get back to like that idea you see like and you know in the idea back then with people who were certainly religious where they're like you know i'm sorry but it was the drink that you know you see the the, the that came out of me because of the, the the drink how and how evil the drink is you know that he yeah, says yeah. something like that you know the, the the ways but i'm changed now yeah, yeah and, he's put on his charm again yeah and he said i'm gonna you know and it almost seems like they're like they're they're very yeah let me ask you because this given what you're talking about with this scene and the dinner scene this this dinner scene and what's going on you're basically you know about to say that everything kind of seems normal and he's talking about now the school teacher is saying i've changed my mind i'm not going to stay here anymore and take over we're going to leave and we're the first garrison we find because that we we also learn very soon when he wakes up from his delirium after initially getting his leg cut off is that the south has retreated and all the southern troops are gone and now 
the union are moving into the area. So the next sense of urgency is for Eastwood. Jesus, if I just leave and go a couple, a mile or so, I can find my own troops. And then on the other side of that, the uh, headmistress's concern is Jesus. They could come here, rape, pillage, and burn the place down. Yeah. So we don't want to, you know, we want to just be as quiet it as possible. It seems pretty clear that, like, that's... It, and there's a very specific scene when it becomes kind of clear that, like, that's a danger... No matter what. No matter what. It's not the because union, they're women. The union soldiers aren't, yeah. aren't the only the only problem. The yeah. better soldiers are a little because yeah, because there's, yeah, there's a scene right before all this happens. Um, all the shit goes down where the the Confederate soldier she was speaking with earlier in the day comes back. The yeah, headmistress in the night, and they're like, you know, they're saying we want to just make. Do you need anybody posted here? We'd like to give our best to the women because you know they they want to get some ass. Yeah, yeah. And uh, she does a great job on kind of like. You know, luckily yeah, yeah. she's able to to, to persuade she's them like, no, to leave. No, we're fine. Hey, get out! Bye, 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 Okay, yeah. <laughs> she just sits and locks the door. So he get fast forward to like when they're talking about leaving Eastwood and the because they're he says you know like don't worry I'll tell him to, to post a guard out there and then the the girl the the school teacher's like yeah and I'll make sure he does when we leave you know and the headmistress taking it back like you're leaving with him and and then you know he's like oh you picked me mushrooms can I have yeah, some yeah. and you see everybody. Passes the mu- no one yeah. touches the well, mushrooms. That's my question: Is do you think that they were really poisonous? No. Well, that it's. Do we know that as an audience? That before. What's her face before Jolene Page is like, no, don't eat them to the teacher. I think I think it's implied because because it's brought up before, right? She goes, I know where which ones to pick and which ones are bad. Yeah, or not. yeah, but it's all like I said, it's all subtext. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, there's it's, even it's not like I'm going to go pick the poison ones. There, there's it's even like, a, oh yeah, I know where to find the mushrooms. I mean, certainly to me, and I, to be honest, I don't even remember. I don't even know if I remembered that he dies at the end of this movie, the first from 20 years ago when yeah. I watched it. I mean, I remembered the leg and stuff, and I remembered that the ending was kind of dark. So for me, it was like when she's like, you know, let's make him dinner, and he knows he loves those mushrooms, Amy. Wink, wink. <laughs> you know, Motherfucker. Yeah. You know, like to me, it was like, okay, that's what's happening. But I wonder if that was a little bit of a surprise in 1971. It had to be. I mean, also... To, it, Not surprised that, like, they're going to kill him, but, the, but that, like... He actually dies. That they actually well, that... There's this plot, like like I said, do they do we know that he's poisoned until he realizes he's poisoned? I don't. And then there's an also there's a conf, there's a, uh, a conflicting argument is that were they really poisonous mushrooms to begin with, or did he, his heart just fail him? You know, because at the end she says, you know, uh, you know, I I know good mushrooms from bad mushrooms. You know, like she they 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 I think they. They tell themselves that yeah, yeah. It well, wasn't... clearly they know because she tells the teacher not to eat them. Yeah, she's like, no. <laughs> yeah. So what happens is Eastwood takes into the entire time they're talking. Eastwood's just piling the mushrooms. He's eating them. He's, <laughs> he's, just, he's a great, you know, <laughs> ice cream scoop yeah, of mushrooms. Yeah, he's like he's ladling it out, and then the school teacher sitting next to him is like, "Hey, let me get some of that." So he gives the <laughs> so she ladles it out and she hey, puts it right get, in her. Let me get some of that. And everybody's everyone's like quiet and they're looking yeah. and you know everyone, not no one's making eye contact with them. Yeah. Which is another crazy thing, and then what does she she and he says to it, it's interesting. Eastwood says to the little girl, like I, I want I want to be sorry and I want to apologize to you and I hope you understand. And she doesn't say I forgive you. She goes, oh, I understand why you did it. 
the little girl yeah. says something like that, which is almost you know, me being married. I know what that means. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a there's a clear difference of being forgiven for something, as well as you being like you know like oh I know what you oh, meant. Oh, I get it. it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, once the the school teacher's about to eat the mushroom, and then Geraldine Page is like no 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 don't put it in your mouth, <laughs> and then it's almost weird. She stops and she's got the mushroom in her mouth. But she knows. Like yeah. she's like oh, and she kind of she spits it back up, puts it down, and she starts just eating like it's normal. And East was like, what the fuck? You and then he realized that no one's eating mushrooms, <laughs> and he he's gets gonna, up. He's got a big plate full of mushrooms, <laughs> yes. and nobody else has mushrooms. <laughs> and he gets up, and he and all of a sudden it starts to hit him, and there, you get this little cool sequence with the. Uh, you know, everything starts getting a little wavy. He's like, oh, you fucking bitches. <laughs> you know, and you see he kind of stumbles out of the room and then you hear a crash and the other girl, the school teacher runs after and then everyone, and then people start to get up and Geraldine Page's like, everybody sit down and finish the meals. Everything's going to be all right. You know, yeah. and then the next day we have like the denouement is the, um, we see this shot of the dead crow hanging and I'm like, holy yeah. shit, the crow's dead. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's out there and they're, they're, they're kind of, um, Sewing a body bag. Yeah, sewing him into a body bag. And it gets back to the same day-to-day there where it's like uh, they're talking about, here's the new stitch you can make. Let me show you how to do this stitch. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Do it's like, a lesson. Yeah, it's it's a, it turns lessons. into a sewing lesson. And then they're like, do you think he had died? You know, he's like, no, he, he, the death was quick. And then you see a shot of Eastwood dead, which is kind of freaky. And they're sewing him up. And then it's just like, you know, business as usual. And then they, 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 they put a... When I was little, I remembered it that they were going to go give him to the to Union soldiers or whoever. But you see them, they put a shovel on top of him. And they're probably just bringing him out to bury him somewhere. And they open the gate and, like, one girl starts, like, skipping. You know, it's completely like, oh, it's like a Twilight Zone episode. They'll yeah, never yeah. think of this again. Well, there's even a moment where they're, like, excited. Like, they're going to bury it. Yeah. And they're like, bury what? Like, the leg, silly. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> And Eastwood even says that too, like you know, do I get to keep the leg or whatever? You know, it's 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 so weird. He's got a couple good lines there because when he comes back drunk, and he's like, uh, "What did he say?" He has the letters, and he goes like, "Was this your sweetheart?" And she goes, "No, those were my brother." He's like, "That's not the question I'm asking." He says something there. To yeah, where, you yeah. Know, it's pretty cool. So I mean, but the whole thing of like they're going to bury the leg, they're excited to bury the leg, they're going about their business. With his, with you know, with sewing the body bag and whatever, it's very much playing into the whole idea which we were talking about earlier is that they've kind of created this little microcosm of their own amongst this war and just are kind of pretending like it's not happening. Yeah, they're kind of pretending like none they of this just happened. fucking kill this guy. Yeah, and that's why they're almost explaining away like the little girl's like, no, of course I didn't poison. Them. I know what the good mushrooms are versus bad. So it's almost like they're completely yeah. suppressing this by. A week or two, this could this have never could never yeah. have happened, and they're going to go. Remember li- when that guy was here? Yeah, he was a good guy. I'm glad he left. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so it's it, that's where it gets really fucked up, and the uh, you know the implication here about the evilness and the wickedness of you know I guess in '70s terms a pack of women. <laughs> you know, what I mean, like you know, and then you get to the, so you get to the marking of this. Well, the, another cool thing that uh, Don Siegel does in this movie is he doesn't want the women to wear makeup at all. Uh, you know, because he wants it to look yeah. kind of realistic as possible. And that's something Eastwood ends up doing in, in other movies. He especially uh, play Misty for me. He likes minimal as possible, you know, makeup and stuff like that. Yeah. I think it works here. But um, you have the uh, when they, they, they see the picture, they don't know what to do with it. Universal. Universal's like, you know, how are we going to who are we going to sell this to? Because, you know, Eastwood's an action star. So yeah. they they with the trailer, they bill it like, you know, uh, are they, are they after his love or are they after him? You know, it's like it gets really weird. And so what ends up happening is 
it becomes a, bo- a box office bomb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, you have to put post the trailer. Yeah, put it as a link. <laughs> the trailer's crazy because it's just like, bitches be crazy. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Do they, you know, will they? Do they want his love, or will they kill him because they can't get it? You know, sexual, you know, Vertal Clint Eastwood plays a hard cock. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's so, so Siegel and, and and Eastwood really get upset by how the the picture is is marketed, and that's where Eastwood says, like, you know, he kind of feels like he was miscast in the sense that had he not starred in the movie, this the movie would have did a lot better. But yeah. since they don't know how to market it, they they. Even in the trailer, there's 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 scenes of him like shooting guns and he's run. They make it a lot more action packed than it really is. Yeah, you know when all that is just in flashback and uh, you know it, it that really sours him w- with this experience, this movie experience. Then he ultimately ends up leaving Universal after he fulfills his play Misty for me, and I think the Iker Sanction is his last. Universal movie, he takes Mal Paso, which is his production company, which does Dirty Harry, and he goes to Warner Brothers. Wade Wasser done this one. Yeah, yeah. Mal Paso did this. He takes the production company and himself, and he first teams up with Warner on Dirty Harry, and then he's worked with Warner, well, not exclusively, but up until today, he's been making movies with yeah. Warner. Um, and, you know, that's another idea of what, with the the flashbacks, is that I love that, um, you know, when we... It's it, the movie doesn't pull punches in the sense where it could very easily omit areas about them where like Eastwood's saying to like you know he explains how he got there and he's saying you know the reason why I'm in this ma'am is because I had to try to save a Confederate soldier and you understand and but then while he's saying this you have a flashback of him just snipering yeah. soldiers but then he gets shot and then a bomb goes off near him and that's why he gets sh- you know or the other scene where he's talking about how lovely the land looks and he hates how it's being destroyed by but then while he's saying this you have the flashback of him openly just burning the fields too yeah, he's yeah. he's engaging in this warlike barbarity you know so uh going back to what we said at the beginning you know at, at first glance you could take that this this is a, a antique device the narration and almost silly but then i like the stark uh, honesty of the, you know, it really tells you what's happening and almost clarifies in certain scenes what they actually mean, you know, with the brother, the the, the incestual brother and the, yeah, the yeah. you know, raping this, the slave girl and, uh, you know, Eastwood is clearly lying about everything here. You know, he's a manipulator and he doesn't really care and then those yeah, manipulations. Yeah. It's, like, it's like we're saying, it's, it's definitely a device that we don't see a lot of, so it's a little jarring at first, but I think you're right. I think it's effective. Definitely. I mean, it's it's giving us an insight to what's going on that certainly we wouldn't have without it. You know, there some of them are things that we would never get from subtext, um, and especially in his case, you know, where it's just seeing it's telling the audience like he's he's fibbing. Yeah, he's, he's not he's not telling everybody the truth here. And this is also like people call this like Hitchcockian film kind of. And I felt like that would be interesting to see like. Hitchcock was alive at this point. It'd be cool to see his take. Like a, this could have been very, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and for the, the Bruce Ortiz, the, the, for this to be his first time as a DP, you know, he has some really amazing shots where he's got some really like impossible angles at points. And he's sometimes shooting in almost virtual darkness. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not saying it's like a Barry Lyndon thing where like Kubrick and Barry Lyndon lit the entire thing by candlelight, but a lot of times it looks like the only source of light in the scene is like a candelabra or something, you know. So it's quite effective, you know, the cinematography for this almost claustrophobic kind of environment. Because even though we're in this big antebellum mansion, 
it does very, feel very claustrophobic because he's locked in this music room. He can't get out much. When he does get out, it's nighttime, so it's very shadowy. You know, he can't get off the estate when he's able to go outside. Sure. You know, even the gazebo they go into is 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 almost claustrophobic because of all the uh, vine, yeah, the vegetarian vines that have that is that have kind of um, yeah. enveloped the gazebo. But it's, you know, it's interesting because you brought up misery. It is to a certain extent a very similar story. Yeah. Um, I think it's a good comparison. A very kind of, masculine person who's stuck in a bed. Yeah. You know, and being kept there. Yeah. Uh, for one reason or the other. You know, misery, it's, yeah. it's obsession. And then she, and then much like in this movie, they then maim him for whatever reason under the guise that it's helping him or they're symbolically castrating him. And then he's, they want then to have it be back again. Oh, we're taking care of him. It'll be fine. You know, it's. Now he can't leave, you know. <laughs> so it, it's it, it's it's yeah. it's very interesting. So then, yeah, the movie ends up coming up, coming out, you know. And like we said, it doesn't do well at all. Uh, although um, it does very well in in Europe and France, and the French loved the film, and they they that's French. Yeah, they cite this as like some of Eastwood's finest work, uh, and it's a classic over there. And um, you know, it it be, it ends up becoming a cult classic because this and Play Misty for me. Eastwood kind of goes kind of in the route of horror, but then in the mid-70s, he does a, a movie called uh, High Plains Drifter, which is basically like a, a Western horror, if, if you can c- categorize that. And that's yeah. firmly grounded in, the, in, in horror. So it is something out of type for him at the time. You know, it's a risk, and then it doesn't prove well. But then in the grand scheme of things, you kind of see why his career goes the way it does, where he starts doing these... Uh, artsy pictures to try to counteract the, the his his masculine image as well as him starting to helm projects as a director because he doesn't like how things are done when he's just being paid as an actor. Um, and then you cut to uh, the late eighties. You have um, the poor woman in this. Her name is um, Elizabeth Hart- Hartman, who is the school teacher we've been talking about, and she. First comes to public eye in, a, I think it's a, a Shade of Blue, which is a movie where she's a blind lady and she falls in love with Sidney Poitier, who, you know, of course, she's white, he's black. So that's the, the idea of the movie, the racial tension. And, you know, she's colorblind because she's blind. Yeah. She does this movie and then she does some stuff else in the 70s, but then her career goes on a decline. And I think her last role credit is, I think, in The Secret of Nim, she might be the lead, the little female mouse. Uh-huh. That might be her voice. But uh, sadly, she suffers from depression, the illness, you know. So sure. she starts to, she has a very severe depression as well as like a lack of confidence in herself, which then is uh, embodied or uh, heightened because her career kind of goes on a spiral in the late 70s. And then the 80s, she ends up not getting much work and people forget about her. And then like in 1988, she moves back to her hometown in Pittsburgh and she ends up committing suicide. She jumps out of her fifth floor apartment. And they say later on, we find out that she'd called her doctor that day and she was despondent and she couldn't get in touch with her doctor. Yeah. And later on, she ends up killing herself, which is, you know, such a tragedy that, you know, it's, it's depression and that kind of a thing is a real illness for people. Yeah. And, you know, this, this sadly, you know, um, you know, uh, got the best of her and, Within three days later, Geraldine Page ends up passing away from like a heart attack. Well, two completely unrelated things, but these two characters who yeah, you know yeah. are the center of this movie, and like you said, that it was that was Rip Torn's wife at the time. I think uh, 
he was still married or to her at the time, so she passed away. So it's kind of like a tragic end for these two people. Yeah, you know, uh, the Joanne Harris, who's the, the 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 Carol, the the sex pot in this movie. I guess her and Eastwood actually had a fling that ended up lasting past this picture for a little while. You know, because she's like a freaking, you know, she's a little. <laughs> uh, little, uh, you know. She's very attractive. He's very attractive in this movie. So um, I guess that's really the base of it. So I'm, yeah, I'm interested in seeing the Sofia Coppola movie and see how they deal with things. And especially the biggest thing is the changing of perspective from it being from the guy's point of view, uh, aside from it being a male director, but Eastwood's character, then yeah. on this side being a female director and telling it from the story. Well, it's of, not totally from his, from the know, Eastwood character point of view, but. Uh, but it's but it but it is to a large extent. I mean, there are certainly parts of it that are not his perspective. Yeah, there's stuff he can't tell or you know. Wouldn't you know, know. It's, it's it's such a weird thing. You know, the only part of it that I really read is about the new one. Is I started to read something and she was like Sophia Coppola talking about it about this one and why she wanted to do the new one, and I just said I didn't want to read it anymore. <laughs> That's that's how I kind of just I was like I don't know it just seems very and I didn't finish the interview so I I can't really say but to me it just it seemed like a very uh I don't I don't know juvenile is not the word but it seemed like a very millennial perspective yeah. Uh, like it was by guys, and it was so seventies. Yeah, that's that's what I like. Okay, like I don't want to read any more. Yeah. <laughs> that's what re- immediately turned me off about. I thought this looked and I so got nothing good against her. No. I like Lost in Translation. Yeah, just fine. And, and Virgin and, Suicides and the Bling Ring and stuff. Yeah, but I it, mean, I wasn't crazy about some of the other ones, but but I got nothing against her. Yeah, I mean, this looks like I'll definitely I certainly see it, but it just that kind of put a bad taste in my mouth. Where it's like they're almost knocking this. Where it's like, oh, it's so seventies, and they didn't deal with stuff well, and it was so macho, and it's like. That's like the superficial version of it, but then yeah. even like the this supposed controversy Wait. with her taking the black character out, yeah. and, and then African American critics getting mad at that, and, and then them claiming that it wasn't even handled well in this movie, which I completely disagree with. I thought yeah. this was, but we're also not African American. But yeah. I, but I, but, but I mean, me, you do see the class but, system. But you know? being sensitive to it, I don't. I agree with you. Like I don't. I actually think it's a very, uh, very positive portrayal of and realistic you know it's, you know yeah i mean not know. positive in that like slavery is great but no it's a positive but, but, but in a positive sense in that she, that she's you know, not like she's a, not a victim she's a strong female she's not character. a stereotype she's certainly not a stereotype you know that you had like say 20 or 30 years before that with like the step and fetcher or the yeah, yeah. Uh, birmingham brown character you know you get those kind of like just they're you know, black people are put in just for comic relief or they're bumbling and they don't know anything that that certainly now she, I think she's a fully realized, strong female yeah, character and maybe the most likable person out of the yeah. entire and, and certainly someone you, you may have the most uh, empathy for or sympathy yeah. for in the piece. You're like, yeah, this is horrible. Her situation. It's clearly a, uh, you know, the system, you know, we're, we're, sucks of 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 the the situation she's in as well as she makes it clear like you know what does she say like uh later on to eastwood like you know white people or no matter what you know she says something that even though he's a northerner it don't matter you know still you're still white and you're still yeah there's still a class distinction or whatever yeah no i agree but yeah the the idea of like as soon as i read like it's so 70s it's made by two men and it's so 70s it was like that's 
I don't know. To me, it just reeked. And I, I'm not passing any judgment. I don't know her. And I didn't finish the interview, like I said. But I stopped reading because it reeked so much of like someone that doesn't love cinema the way I love cinema yeah. anyway. <laughs> like can... that you're just going to that's you're gonna dismiss it like automatically because of that. Yeah. Uh, like... You get that a lot nowadays with people who, you know, because it's older, yeah. because it's black and white, because yeah. it's pre-1980 or 90, immediately people don't want to watch it. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, and we certainly see that even people our age, like, oh, I'm not going to watch it. It's black and white. And you're like, well, you know. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, or just it's, just it's a shame because, like we said about even you know like Wayne's World, you know things even this you know some of the uh, arguably quote unquote sillier stuff that we that we that we've covered on this show that you know looking at things to me one of the most interesting things about doing a show like this. And why it can be interesting to even venture into kind of territory that we don't normally do is because everything is a little bit of a time capsule of the t- of of its era of its time, you know. And like you have to watch it with that in mind. I think that is certainly for me, us doing this series of podcasts is something that is really reaffirmed that you have to. Uh, I don't know if 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 that's the problem the casual film person of cinema file has but if you are a hardcore cinema fan you can't certainly if you're a director yeah or if you're the daughter of a very famous director and i'm not implying in any way sofia coppola has this um uh, uh predisposition but it's, you know it's you have to come with movies like this with the kind of the... That's why we like to sometimes add in the historical nature because it's, oh, yeah. well, it's much it, more interesting it's very, to frame it's, it. And it's very important because what a movie says about its time is as important and as interesting as what the narrative is. Yeah. You know, it can, you know we took classes... Like, I took a class that was all about how the future is portrayed in film and what that says about the time that the movie's made. You know, this, you know, aside from the fact of uh, the, you know, box office draw of having, like, Mad Max do very well, there's a reason why this, like, post-apocalyptic future is p- depicted in the late 70s and into the 80s. Yeah. You know, that has much more to do with that, like, one did good so they just kind of copy that it's what it says about its time and that's one of the reasons why we've been kind of harping on it this would be an interesting juxtaposition to the new one because we're talking about a movie from the early 70s made by two kind of old school male filmmakers because women unfortunately didn't have a very prominent role in the filmmaking industry at that point to now have a young female filmmaker making a the same story that that like that's what the, we've been talking about since the beginning of this podcast. It's like what's that going to say about this? Like how are those two interpretations going to tell that story? It's also very reminiscent of what, uh, not reminiscent, but it's very you know telling of what the time period. Yeah. Well, is. one of the things that I read in one of the. Sophia Coppola interviews her casting of Colin Farrell was she I think she was doing an, uh, the interview with a um, a gay magazine or website that she actively cast him to to appeal to women and gay men 
yeah. you know, she wanted to get that allure. So there's scenes where she's trying to make him look like eye candy for, you know, and, and the even the interviewer uh, is like, that's great. I, I was so happy you, you, know, <laughs> you did it yeah, as a yeah. conscious. Was that true? You did it as a conscious decision. So it's interesting, the motivations then, because she was talking about she has a, uh, a, a gay best friend or close friend who she wanted to like, like appease or yeah, so, yeah. you know so this was a element where you know that you know to add that you know to appeal to to that section of people so well, just the pure act of this of taking out the slave character is clearly an ex- yeah, an example of exactly what we're talking about taking that deciding to take that character out is because of the way the world is today yeah like that's what's that's the motivation behind that decision yeah you know, so already like that is already saying that one decision is saying so much about, you know, 2017. Yeah. <laughs> so just if you look at a movie like the, the the original Beguiled, you know, you watch it with that lens. Like what, you know, what's that? What are those decisions saying about 1970? You know, it's look, you know, films are films are a beautiful thing. Um, and there's so much, so many layers to be able to look at these things. Um, and it's just a shame that uh, one world would be a would be a boring place if we all kind of viewed things the same way and we all like the same stuff. But it's also kind of unfortunate that we have a selection of people that even maybe consider themselves film fans. And uh, this is again, I'm not talking about Sofia Coppola. This is I'm more talking about you know other people that I know or see on social media and stuff that don't seem to scratch far enough past the surface. Nor do they want to. Yeah, or do no, they, they take an active decision that, that they think what they do is good enough, and because of that, they don't feel like they need to dive down any deeper for whatever reason. Maybe it's laziness or a, yeah, or a, just a, a complete... An indifference yeah, in a weird of, way. Of not, of not even caring about it, which is, you know, that's another a, a, a topic for another even, you know, other day of just how weird that is. Um, you know, we talked, the movie ended up, this movie came out and it, it, it ended up charting very high, but it ended up making less than a million dollars and it ended up making less money than, uh, the Melvin Van Peebles movie, Sweet, Sweet, Sweet Back's Badass Song, which is actually a quite good, a, a movie that almost opened up the whole black exploitation genre yeah, at the time. And there was that movie with... Mario Van people playing his father about the making yeah, of that movie, which is a great. I think it's called Sweetback or Bad. No, it's called Badass. It's yeah. a very good movie. That movie, I actually own that. I love that. Um, and also, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the alternate titles that that Universal actually had on this. One is ready for this: Pussy Footing Down at the Old Plantation, <laughs> and On One I Walked. <laughs> Those are the two alternate titles that they were kicking around before they settled on the beguiled. And I even like the original novel, the A Painted Devil. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a pretty cool title too. Before the author um, Cullinan decided to like put bega- besieged, be- besmirched, <laughs> befuddled. Uh, so um, beloved. I think we uh, and this is a lot, a bit of like Halloween three in it, where the marketing is completely. You know, Halloween three people thought they were going to go see a new Michael Myers movie, and people were like, "What the fuck is this shit?" Yeah, you yeah. know, and that's a bit here where you know you have the hardcore Eastwood fans because he's holding a gun on the cover, and yeah. They, they go it's in and they're like, they're like weird... "What the?" F-? And then he dies at the end. It's like you know, there are people who knows. But what then I guess if you make that argument, and I don't, we don't need to go too far down this rabbit hole. But I always wonder if that kind of thing, 
Because then I guess you're implying that the the word of mouth is poor. Because anybody that's going to go see it is going to go, you know, and doesn't know what it is, they're going to pay the ticket to see it. Yeah. But I guess at some point, like, I guess the implication is that word of mouth is bad. And that's why people stop going to see it. Well, they could certainly, I think they could certainly kill a, it can either make a movie or kill a movie, the word of mouth on it, you know? Yeah. So nowadays. Or I guess maybe reviews. Yeah, reviews are, might knock it. But nowadays, I feel like that doesn't matter more. As long as they get the money recouped from the ticket, they don't care how good the movie is or the reaction. If they make a certain amount of money, it'll maybe garner a sequel. Where back then, it seemed like people were a little more about the art. The artisticness of it. Yeah. So, well, sequels weren't. Yeah, they weren't even a thing. In the then. traditional sense, and weren't even a thing yet. Yeah, I mean, you had just, I guess, them continuing like the Thin Man. They'd make a series of those movies or whatever. You know, they weren't Bonds. Like, yeah, uh, as we see today, like the, you know, like temptations of the same story. Yeah. Um, we were talking about a little while ago. We were giving recommendations from like our podcast to listen to with this. And I think this is a great companion to the Dirty Harry podcast because you have Eastwood, you have Don Siegel, the director, you have Bruce Ortiz, the the DP, you have Lalo who does the soundtrack in this movie, Lalo Schifrin, who we love, who's, who does a phenomenal soundtrack on Dirty Harry. Uh, so the soundtrack that inspired the soundtrack to Assault on Precinct 13. Dun, 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 <laughs> dun, 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 dun. It's, that's one of my favorite soundtracks, uh, Lalo's Dirty Harry soundtrack. But so uh, I think it's definitely recommended, especially this would be probably a good one to do uh, maybe with Play Misty for me. I mean, it's, it's, it's also another interesting thing that all those movies come out at the same time. You have him within a two-year period working with Don Siegel like three or four times sure. on Two Mules for Sister Sarah. This movie, he directs play misty for me but he has don siegel in it almost as a good luck charm and then he has then he goes and does dirty harry with don siegel which has play misty for me playing at the movie theater yeah the marquee the at the beginning yeah so it's it's uh it's an interesting time period you know so um yeah yeah totally i I, know, I agree i mean i'm certainly i'm not a eastwood fan in the in the sense of like i like plenty of eastwood movies but i would never consider myself a fan but this is definitely one that i I enjoy because it's fucking fucking batshit crazy. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, and it's and it's just interesting. I think there's a lot of positives. That's it's and I found it kind of funny, not funny, but I found it, I guess, interesting. You know that you relaying the things that are being said about this one now because of the because of the quote unquote remake. Yeah, well, a lot of yeah, I I don't like the dismissiveness of. A lot of times you see that where they'll make a new movie and they'll just dismiss the old one to a certain extent or kind of like just, uh, uh, you know, I, yeah, it's just, just, I, yeah. it's just, I find it, I don't know, it's just odd to me. Yeah, but we're running around in circles. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe one day we would do Play Misty for me on here, but if, you know, until then, that's a great movie to check out. You know, that's something that, we, like we said, we it comes up almost like in a remake as Fatal Attraction, you know, uh, and that's uh, certainly another movie that's, you know, outside the Eastwood norm, but he directs and helms that. So that might be a good double feature with this. You know, if you're used to your Eastwood being a gun-toting Western guy with no name or a, a cop or whatever, you, you know. You get to see him as a DJ. Yeah, you get to see him as a DJ playing <laughs> jazz tunes, you know. Uh, so it's, it's interesting, you know, and that's a whole other story. And it's and it's interesting these two movies are back-to-back as well. So, um, and, and, you know, go, maybe the new one's good. Let us know. If anybody out there s- listens to this podcast and sees the new movie, let us know how you think about it. Yeah. Drop us an email on our website or uh, Facebook message us or twi- tweet, twi- twi- twixt us on, on the Twixter. 
and uh, let us know what you think. And next week we're back to our regular slot, and we have a scheduled program. Yeah, we yeah, you know, we broke in, you know. We, uh, and this, you know, next week is a, is a movie. Or, uh, 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 I, you know, we've been really excited about doing this one. Next week's uh, journey into the fantastic. So we'll see. Um, you know, if everyone uh, likes what we have in store, hopefully it will be amazing. Yeah. And then in the meantime, we'll also have a, we're kicking in the summer. We're summer's in the full swing. So uh, you guys have no idea. Yeah, you have no idea what you all and <laughs> what you've got yourselves into. So, but we hope you like what's been going on. Um, Tell a friend, uh, you know, check us out on Facebook, on Twitter. Yes, please uh, take the time to rate and review us on iTunes because that makes us come up on searches on iTunes for other people looking for movie podcasts that'll raise our more positive reviews that we have. The higher we'll get in the rankings, more more people will see us and then hopefully check us out. And, uh, you know, tell people about us, leave us reviews, like you said, uh, retweet us like us any of that kind of thing let us know if you have any uh requests you know we sometimes take requests <laughs> we know. take requests we don't always do yeah requests. but it's hard because like we always say so many movies we don't so consciously not do requests yeah. we're just... not like that we're, we're not like that band that you go on a saturday night that yeah, they're playing get all, to it. yeah what do you guys know uh you know well, yeah we know that but we're not gonna play it you know <laughs> It's just a matter of, uh, you know, we have a regimented schedule. We yeah, do one every two weeks. schedule thing, and then we have a lot of requests. And like Dion said, so many good movies, so little time. So little time. So uh, hope you like this this little um, surprise, this little nugget, and uh, we'll see you in a week, actually. Bye. Later.